let me just quickly, you know what? I'm going to dispense with my monologue. We'll get to it later. I was just going on a rant about how, you know, trying to call the market on a day-to-day, a week-to-week basis is a fool's errand. I try not to do it. And that people are always trying to ascribe meaning to daily movements. And, you know, what's often more, oftentimes, Stan Weinstein would say, it's not the news that counts, but it's the reaction to the news that's important. And if people try to start saying, well, because the market was up yesterday in response to what the Fed said or didn't say, therefore, the coast is clear, all good, not so fast. So, again, I try not to get caught up in the day-to-day and uh, week-to-week jiggles. Uh, Instead, try to look out a little bit further. And my view hasn't changed. We've been in this period where, you know, the first half of the year, market got destroyed, valuations compressed in response to... um, rising interest rates. The second half of the bear market, as Michael Kandrowitz has been calling out, and Ian Harnett, is going to be less about valuation compression and more about earnings falling apart. I agree with that view. That's my view. So we're in this awkward transition phase right now. Anything's possible in the short run. I don't really think anything has changed. I think the idea that inflation is going to come down to the 2% target the Fed wants by next year, even if inflation is peak, but the idea that it's going to get to 2% with wage inflation of 5% and accelerating and still a record number of job, job occupancies as opposed uh, to, to people looking for jobs, to me, it's very fanciful. So enjoy the rally while, while it lasts. We'll take it from there. So in any event, I'm sorry I, I kind of rambled. I didn't realize I had the mute button on. So I don't want to waste any more people's time. We're really here to we're here today to listen to uh, – our great speaker, Danny Moses. Danny's very well known to uh, most of you. Requires very little introduction. There's not much I can say. He's had a wealth of experiences. There's a lot we can talk about. Whether how he got started in his career, the big short, various good trades he's made in the past, how he views markets now. But I always, we can get to all that in the course of the hour. But um, I think to just kick it off, Danny, where I'd like to start is... You know, there are a lot of moving parts in the market right now. Um, opinions are like noses. Everyone has one. I could use a more, I could employ a more crude uh, rendition of that, but I won't. Um, let's start off, Danny. So as you look at, as you look at markets, um, what occurs to you? What, 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 what sort of compels you? What do you have high conviction on? You know, it may not be the market itself, the market's collection of stocks. It may be a group. It may be a theme, a sector, whatever, but what's sort of top of mind for you? What are you most passionate about? What are your most strongly held views right now? Welcome, Danny. Very, very nice to, to, to have you here today. Yeah, George, thanks for having me on. Um, and, you know, I think for the first time in a long time, what's really hit me is how good things were for so long um, as a consumer, as an investor, if you were long, obviously, not if you try to fight the tick like me, but I'm saying just in general, market conditions, consumer conditions, and you start to realize this reversion to the mean is going to be painful in many categories, not just in the markets, but just in life in general and purchasing power and things like that. So I think back to the um, global financial crisis or great financial crisis, great recession, whatever you want to call it in 2006, seven, eight, nine, and all the programs that the fed obviously brought in and treasury brought in and all those things that kind of masked, I think what, we're seeing now. And what, what I mean by that is there hasn't been price discovery in bonds or equities for quite some time. The advent of passive investing 
um, obviously has created a massive correlation to all things equities and all things bonds. Passive investing in fixed income, as a matter of fact, you know, has grown to crazy levels as well. So I think we're going burning back through the atmosphere here and starting to do bottom up work in credit and equities. And that comes at a cost. So I think the haves and the have nots in both of those worlds will continue to separate themselves. And I think that's a lost art. And, you know, I think, you know, George, you and I have seen many cycles, obviously. Um, and this is unlike anything we've seen. So to even try to predict what this is going to be like uh, is a fool's errand. Uh, you'll have fits and starts of, of, you know, the point you made at the opening of markets can rally for a period of days and the chase goes on. And then but the backdrop of it is this. And I'll turn it back over to you that we just got through, so we just saw two negative quarters of GDP, right? I don't care what definition of, you know, recession is, whatever. While unemployment is still effectively at an all-time low, unemployment only has one direction to go here. And the layoffs have really started, the announcements of the layoffs have started in earnest in the last three to four weeks. So all the stuff you're looking at is backwards looking. What the Fed has done, and now they're back to the levels of kind of the last rate cycle three or four years ago, where we are. We haven't seen anything yet. But one thing is clear that the bond market is telling us. The bond market is telling us that the economy is going to slow. Uh, the, the, the inversion is obviously giving us all the signals that we need on the 210 and 2325. However, you want to look at the entire curve is, inver- is flat now or inverted. And that's what I'm watching. And I'm watching that the Fed now, who's been wrong for, I'm not going to rant on the Fed here, um, but has been wrong for several years in not addressing um, what was coming as far as inflation is now overshooting to the opposite side. And I just can't understand um, why, you know, this need to get to 2% so quickly. Again, I'm not saying that they shouldn't raise rates. I'm, I'm saying that they should. But the logic that didn't exist when they didn't raise rates is now the same logic when, they, when, they're, when they're raising rates. And the reason I say that is the comment that Powell made yesterday about, listen, the, this meeting to the September meeting is the longest duration that we're going to have. And I think the bulls took from that as if, Great. Well, we're going to see a lot of economic data that's going to show that things are slowing. It's going to be right in the Fed's face. Gasoline prices are dropping. So the things that we know about, inflation has probably peaked. The problem with that is, and I promise I'll turn it back to this point, is if that's true and the economy is slowing like this, earnings are still too high. And Mike Wilson always says, you know, and I think he's great. I think he's nailed a lot of this stuff is you, you never buy the first cut to earnings. I and mean, we are cutting earnings now. It's just starting. So I think there's going to be a massive reset. I think risk premium is going to get reset. I think, you know, so I think we are seeing um, a market that no one has ever seen before. And all we can do is to try to have as many tools or as many signals to watch. But I will say you can own the market. This is not a bear rant at all, but you need to own quality. And it can't just be for a day or a week or a month or a quarter. I think you need to really understand what you own. And that goes for equities and bonds. So I'll stop there. I'll turn it back over to you. But we're in the middle of an experiment um, here. And it's not fun being the rat, for sure. So, <laughs> so yeah. really yeah. well said, Danny. Yeah, so I was listening to uh, Jim Bianco this morning, and I urge everyone to follow Jim. He's he's great. He's been in this room a bunch of times, and he pointed out some of the wordsmithing that's going on on the part of the Fed is just false. Um, there's this attempt to try to recast what a recession is. And when I'm having a technical recession, it's not really a recession. It kind of makes you feel like when you're watching an NBA game, Danny, and you know there's, there's a uh, there's a foul and, and one team protests. We got to look at the video replay. You know, go to the caucus in New Jersey. Did the guy have his foot on the line or not? And then we'll decide whether or not it really was a recession or not. And um, 
Jim says calls BS on that. The, the, the administration wants to point to the fact that because jobs are still, we have positive jobs, positive payrolls, that it's not a recession. Well, bollocks, as our British friends would say. And he actually goes back, facts are stubborn things, and I haven't bothered to do the work, but he has, and I presume he's correct. He points out that in 70, 71, 74, 75, 79, 80, all three of those cases, for varying varying duration of time, you had jobs continuing to increase despite the fact the economy was already in a recession. So I just, just say no to the nonsense coming out of Janet Yellen's mouth and Joe Biden's mouth. I don't mean to make it political. I'm just talking about facts. So I think it's quite possible, if not likely, that we are in a recession. I mean, you know, that two quarters negative growth, whatever. But rather than getting into a semantic standing about we're in a recession or not a recession, the question is how do we make money and what moves asset prices? And so I think you were spot on. Mike Wilson's one of my faves also. And he points to never buy um, you know, the first cuts. And we go look at earnings. One of the things that I'm really amped up about is I think earnings are going to be a disaster. And it's not, and I don't mean necessarily in terms of depth of decline. There's an interesting um, note. I put it uh, from the Fed guy, um, Fed guy 12. Um, and we're going to have him in this room sometime in the next couple of weeks. So, Joseph. Yeah, Joseph. Joseph. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, sure, yeah. Sure I just there. read his piece. And he's talking yeah. about how, you know, you're not going to get that much in the way of job losses. And therefore, you know, companies. And there was another great, Miss Shedlock had a similar piece a week or two ago, which I put in my feed. And I want to know what you, what you make of this argument. Today. He's talking about how, you know, um, since the labor market's tight, you know, McDonald's, they talk about 10% wage increases is what they're seeing. The companies really aren't going to shed that much labor. And therefore, you know, all things be equal. That's one of the levers you pull when you want to, you know, protect your bottom line. And I'm just kind of wondering, what do you make of the idea that this could either be, that this might be a, and again, with two guys spitballing, that this may be a sort of long, drawn out, protracted affair. It doesn't have to be deep. Maybe it's shallow, but that it could be long and drawn out. And, and, and the element of time, you know, one thing that strikes me, I'm sorry I'm talking too much, you're not being coherent, I need more caffeine. But, one feature of this market pisses me off. I'm sure you probably noted the same. It's like because the Fed's had this policy of always running to the rescue with more liquidity, we never have a proper bear market. It gets a correction and boom, they fix it, right? But we really screw up everybody if we have this sort of long, drawn out, shallow type of slow economic environment, recession, no recession. Earnings just don't go anywhere. They go flat to down for a long period of time. And because inflation remains higher than it has historically, they can't come to the rescue with a lot of liquidity. So, I, so, so again, the fact that everyone's bared up doesn't tell you anything. Sentiment is, you know, as, as John Carl was saying, John uh, Tom Thorne was saying the other day, it's a condition. It's not a, it's not a, not a trigger. But what would you think about if we just had something? You, know, you said well, this experiment we've never seen before. What about the idea we just get a sort of long, drawn out affair where earnings are flat to down, and you get you, no multiple expansion, in fact, you get contraction, and you get a sort of sandpaper death by a thousand cuts market? What would you say to that, Danny? I was just about to say death by a thousand cuts. You took the words <laughs> out of my mouth. And I, I actually just think, you know, I, I, I think there's something really, really interesting here is that what makes bulls want to go back into the market is if the Fed has their pivot moment. But what would make the Fed have their pivot moment is just continuously um, declining economic indicators, whether it's 
unemployment growth, GDP, whatever it may be, retail sales. And so those don't jive because that means that the market has yet to price in those things into your point about, you know, whether it's price earnings, multiples, however you want to look at it. So we're just at the beginning stages of that at the same time. So again, unwinding the, not just the Fed tightening here, but unwinding the balance sheet through quantitative tightening is already having massive reverberations in the housing market. We've seen that, you know, within the mortgage market. And I'll just tell people, I mean, the biggest clue that uh, Steve Porter, Vinny and myself found in 2004 and five and six was to watch the bond market. But the, it just is what it is. Fixed income investors are smarter than equity investors. That just uh, will always be. Um, there's much more quantitative work that goes in for, you know, for the most part, the people that are actually doing the work. And I watch those markets to tell me exactly what is going to happen. And the bond market is telling us the Fed is overshooting. They're currently overshooting, right? And that the economy does not have the ability to function in a high rate environment because the amount of debt, um, you know, both a government level and private level is too large. And so that in and of itself, George, slows the economy because the companies that need to, that need to come back to market to finance their business, if they can even get the money, you know, if it's a worthy business, they're going to get it at a higher rate. And the ones that only existed because either the Fed was literally buying their debt on the balance sheet of printing are going to go by the wayside. And that is, that is, the, that is the lab experiment that I'm most fearful of. And if you look at what mortgage rates did or have done, even before the Fed started quantitative tightening, it's not does not take a genius to figure out that the dealers in the marketplace or people that are mortgage-backed securities, that those would widen out much quicker, much faster than treasuries were rising. Because just not having Big Brother at, you know, at your back to watch it, it already is happening. And so the most asinine thing that I think Waller said or someone at the Fed said, I think Powell has commented, is they believe with putting a finger in the air, that quantitative tightening is equivalent to a quarter or half of a point of a raise. I mean, so yesterday to me, when the Fed was relieved to just get 75 basis points over with, I think that was, I think we've seen, there will not be another 75 basis point thing that's going to occur. I'm even possible that we're not going to see anything anymore. I'm not going to go out on a limb, but maybe another 25, maybe 50, because the indicator, so what, is that good? No, because the reason that they would shift like that is because, and so I, I guess what I'm saying is trying to match um, where earnings are going versus the Fed pivot and what signal does that send. To me, that's not a reason to go buy the market. That's a reason to actually be more scared about the market. But the point you made, and I'll turn it back to you, here, is that people need to own something. So you can own certain things, certainly, you know, solid consumer staple companies, names that are names that are that are defensive by nature, have a dividend yield higher than, you know, treasuries and so forth. So there are things that you can own. Um, and gold, we can talk about that at some point, which I, you know, truly love here. But again, there's always some to own. And I just, um, that's kind of just a takeoff of the point that you made, but death by a thousand cuts. And that's why it's, it's going to feel, you just can't unwind 13 to 14 years of nonstop liquidity and just turn off the faucet and think that everything's going to be okay. That's awesome. So let's just go deeper in that. So uh, Cantro, Michael Cantro, I hope he comes in the room today. He is always the smartest guy in the room when he's here. When you get into this question about value versus growth, he instead slices that he deals out the cards differently. He says, no, no, don't get into this, you know, value growth arguments or really more about quality and non-quality. So on the one hand, yes, of course, you don't want to own the super long duration loss making um, garbage that Kathy Wood owns. On the one hand, but on the other hand, you also don't want to own the the living dead, the zombie American Airlines, uh, you know, levered balance sheet, high operating leverage, very cyclical, 
at the other. So you don't want to be in either end zone. To use the football analogy, you want to stay in the middle of the field between like the 30-yard lines. You want to own sort of quality growth and quality value, however you want to define that. So it's more about companies that are cash flow positive, good balance sheets um, that don't depend on the kindness of strangers, i.e. external financing. Um, and, you know, with, with the, and you, you turn off the liquidity taps. I mean, uh, we'll find, you know, as Warren Buffett says, well, when the tide goes out, we'll find out who's skinny dipping. So what would you make it? Well, I, I gather, am I right to infer that this sort of quality versus garbage argument, that you would have sympathy for that? Yeah, for sure. And I think the one thing that upsets me most, and I know that you try to do a great job just educating investors, is that, you know, I'm still seeing, call them meme stocks, call them whatever you want, but just garbage companies that just, you know, just trade on either news events that are meaningless to the fundamentals, but the kind of, you know, FOMO trade that people feel like they have to get out. And it's painful to watch these, I don't just Bed Bath & Beyond, the GameStop and AMC and Tesla, which we can certainly dive dive into at some point. That's its own that that's its own animal. But to watch that occur, and you know what the end game is going to be. You mentioned Arc Asset, Kathy, and we know what the end game is going to be. Teladoc today, you know, et cetera. So that part of it is the most damaging part, and that's that's the part that's a piece of kind of 1999, 2000, 2001. Can't buy garbage here. So, and there is no quick fix. There is no quick, you, could you make money on a day trade in an AMC on a box office release on a weekend? Sure. But we all know the terminal value of some of these companies to the point you just made about owning quality. And so to me, that's where we still, I know we're not near the bottom because I'm still seeing those things occur. And as soon as that wipeout occurs and those stocks go to complete orphan status, single digit gone for, you know, then I know that we're getting much, much closer to capitulation. And so I fear, and August has always been a bad month when there's been a reason to have a bad cycle, whether it's 2011, I think 2015, whatever. I think this August is setting up for that exact thing. And so to me, you can, you know, Fed noise aside and all the things that are going on, at the end of the day, you know, stocks are going to find their appropriate levels, whether it's a death by a thousand cuts and it takes a year or two or whether it happens rather quickly. And I'm, you know, again, I don't want to be overly bearish here, but I want the reset to occur quicker. I don't want this slow moving. I, I kind of want the capitulation to occur. And I think everyone does. Let's just get to where we're going to go. And then you can pick up the pieces. And those meme stocks and things like that will not be what, what you want to own. And it's created so much wealth destruction for people on a relative basis, chasing at the top, selling back at the low, even knowing, following people like Ryan Cohen and, and, you know, and Adam Aaron. And, and even if they have good intentions, like there's no corporate governance. Now I'm going off on a tangent. The lack of corporate governance that exists in these various places, and I can blame the SEC, I can blame the boards of these companies, but I blame the investors because do your work, know what you own, you know, look at these, I, no one's going to read an annual report, but, but my, my point is that call bullshit when you see it and don't fall prey to, you know, chasing. So, sorry, yeah. sorry to Danny, No, 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 Danny, that's great. Danny, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. What do you make of the fact that the uh, investing public and they put in what it was over a trillion dollars into the market last year? they've hardly taken any money out this year what do you make of the fact that in the face of these this incredible decline they haven't sold anything because i still i still look at i step back and i say you know what this is not going to be over till these guys puke you have any thoughts about that um yeah it is it is incredible that money is still kind of flowing in i think people don't like to look at their accounts when when they're going down they don't like to open that open the account um obviously and they get quote monthly statements is what we used to term back in the day that would kind of cause some of these moves. 
I'm not sure exactly why the hope trade, you know, listen, people should stay invested if they're long-term investors in the market. You want to own the S&P, you know, don't try to trade, trade around it. But to your point, I don't know if the amount of people that own passive and they feel safe because they, they own a, a, a large um, ETF that, because, but again, I don't think they understand that there's massive correlation, which is, which is occurring when five or six stocks are controlling 50 to 60% right, of all the moves that are occurring. It's just not a healthy environment. So that's why you just pointed, George, and I'll make the comment that I just had. That's why we're nowhere near capitulation. That's why we're nowhere near the bottom. You want to see those people start to sell. That, that, that's what you want to see, and we're just not. And so whether it's a factor of um, they don't need the money yet and they're not tapping into it, I will say one thing which I want to mention is that personally um, people that have lines of credit, whether it, I don't know if it's tied to a home equity line, if a life insurance policy, whoever it may be, and corporations that have it, for the first time in this entire cycle, for the first time in 13 years, if you read the fine print with the asterisk on credit card, et cetera, everything is, gonna, is now exceeding that threshold. So for the first time ever, if you were paying a flat fee of 3% on a line of credit, you were always kind of below that. Last month, for the first time ever, statements went out or they saw, hold on a second, why is my interest on a $200,000 loan at percent change so much and now after what the fed did yesterday that three is north of four and so these are the things that are happening slowly i think that all kind of come together on the consumer and that will start to have an impact and that's why on top of goods being more expensive financing is becoming more expensive on the corporate and consumer side of things these are all kind of blending together and so i don't know what it's going to take but there's a, it feels like there's something coming george because to your point we haven't reached the bottom until we start to see those type of outflows so so, so, Danny, uh, rumor has it you know something about housing, um, and I, I can imagine it's not the focal point of what you do, but um, uh, I'm just curious. Um, you know, we had Ivy Zellman in here the other week, and it was huge Ivy story. fan. Yeah, yeah, she's the best, and we had I think over thirty thousand people listening there. She just blew people out of the water. It was un unreal. And what really struck me was the, my couple takeaways were one, the speed with which the market is changing. And, um, you know, she was talking about how, whether it's because of the internet and you got Zillow and Redfin and all this stuff, you know, people are more in tune with what's going on. But even more important than that, 24%, 24% of transactions are non-primary now. Uh, so whether it's Blackstone, um, you know, buying houses or it's built to rent or it's everyone is becoming a hotelier, you know, everyone wants to do an Airbnb, don't worry, I'll buy it and, 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 and uses an airbnb the point of all that being is a 24 percent being non-primary that when when the market turns down that potentially represents hidden supply and we know history doesn't repeat itself but it rhymes and so yes we do not have the excesses i don't believe that we had in 2008 with respect to uh you know mortgage finance and mortgage backed securities markets but we've got this other issue and so i'm just kind of curious i want to put that out there as you look at housing and recognizing the, the prominent position that that plays in the economy, it may only be a you know, 5% of the economy, but the multiplier effect makes it a huge driver of growth. Um, is there anything noteworthy to your mind uh, when you look at the housing market? Yeah, you don't have as many of the exotic products that I obviously caused a lot of the issues you know, 13, 14 years ago. Um, a lot of the most people are locked into fixed rate, not variable, although that's changing. Um, so those type of things aren't the same. Um, we had a supply problem. Now we're going to have a demand problem, right, on that side. So you have two choices in what we call 
cap rates, I guess, for an investment property, if that's how you kind of want to look at this housing, right? You can, you know, what percentage of the, the rent you're getting relative to the value of the entire property, that's how you calculate your cap rate. With rates moving higher and investors requiring a higher rate of return, you have two choices. You can either raise the rent, right, or the value of your property goes lower. One of the two things is going to happen. So whether that's sitting on a balance sheet of companies that are out there that are buying these homes up and renting them out, or whether that happens on the builder's balance sheet, where, wherever that may happen, we only have one direction to go. And housing, I know Bill Pulte is on this call. I see him up on the top right here. Certainly, having talked to Bill over the years, and he completely understands this dynamic, um, it did not take a lot of what the Fed has done just to create this kind of slowdown in housing. It was rather quick. And the builders themselves got hit on all, right? They got hit with inflation in terms of their costs of cost of materials and so forth. And now, you know, I think we've gotten through, I, I think it's safe to say that we've seen the top in housing. So what, what that's going to cause or what that looks like on the back end, um, you know, it, I don't think it's as damaging as what we once saw, but certainly it was a, it's a leading and a huge component of the economy. Things are still tied to housing in, in many different fan, you know, many different uh, areas. So the answer is I'm watching it. I don't think it's cataclysmic, but it is a signal for the, to me, a huge key for the slowdown in the economy because those things always tend to get hit first. And again, builders may be the best buy in the market when this is all over. So, um, you know, when it's all said and done, they were the first sector that was trading rationally. This sector was starting to get hit, you know, six, seven months ago. It was already telling you what was going to be happening. So builders are always, you know, I think the most cyclically, cyclically impacted sector when it comes to the economy. So. Right. Danny, um, let's move it around here a little bit. Uh, I know you have views on, I, I, but and by the way, I urge everyone to listen to Danny's, uh, he's, you, know, he's, you can find him on YouTube. Uh, did a great interview with my friend, Michael Guyatt about a month ago. So uh, it's quite infor informative. So listen to Danny. I know you have some views on crypto and on gold. Uh, do you want to speak to either of those? Well, crypto, I was never, you know, again, I missed the whole trade, obviously, on the way up. So you shouldn't listen to me on the way down. But obviously, all these coin offerings and tokens and things that were occurring, I knew, you know, I think any person with a brain that's been in the markets long enough knew that that was just flash in the pan. I think it's self-fulfilling that Ethereum, obviously, is here to stay in the sense of the applications that are being created from it. There's too many smart people that are involved to not have something. Bitcoin, you know, is a whole other issue to me. I don't, I don't believe in it. But that's being said, it's, it's, you know, this whole argument that it's, oh, it's tested for inflation. Oh, it's, a, it's kind of horseshit because you, in one way, you want regulation to you, protect people. But at the same time, the whole thesis of Bitcoin was that no government can touch it. So I'm kind of caught there. As it relates to gold, you know, I've been saying for a while, yes, it doesn't, it doesn't have an interest rate on it. It doesn't provide any type of return monthly basis. But with what's going on in the world geopolitically, um, certainly, if the Fed loses control, if you even think they have it in the first point, it's 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 uh, certainly a place to hide. And if there truly is a pivot occurring here, and the Fed has to indeed start cutting rates, um, whether late this year or early next year, I don't see how gold is not a massive beneficiary of it. And I don't think really anyone owns it. Um, and so, again, wouldn't call me a gold bug guy, but of a place that I feel that I can own, I'd rather own gold than cash at this point. So, um, you know, I do like gold here so fair enough um so you've been at this for a long while you've got some i don't know if you have gray hair you probably have less gray hair than i do but it's like any of those dating sites danny is that is that a current photo of you <laughs> yeah no i freeze that in time make it six years old so by the way by the way i want to make a comment on 
Ivy Zellman just, you know, she was a huge part of everything that we did. I mean, we, we got so much information from her in 2005 and six and seven. There was nobody better. There was, you know, five or six key people that I think helped people like us along the way kind of navigate. I just wanted to make sure that I mentioned that. So, you know, Dave, as long as you're saying it, that, that actually brings another question to mind. You know, I haven't been at this for a long while. I think the quality of research has never been worse. Um, street research. Yep. I use Twitter all the time. I follow smart guys like you and a bunch of others. And so, you know, what would you do? You use street research <laughs> at all? And, and, and for the average guy in the room who's trying to figure this out for himself, not telling him what to buy or sell, not giving him picks, but it's the old line, you know, give a man a fish, you give him a meal, teach him how to fish, you give him a livelihood. Like, how would you, what would you say to the average person in the room that wants to make themselves a better investor? I, I mean, Twitter is really one of my main go to research resources. Right yeah, now. for sure. For sure. I mean, I mean is, do, do you use Twitter extensively? Do you follow right Yeah, there? yeah. Yeah, I follow, yeah. Find them. I find a new, new person every day. Um, Wall Street research has never been worse. It's never been more complicit with banking. I mean, I thought we got through this in the Frank Quattrone era, Blodgett era, but it's never been kind of more connected. And nobody is really, um, there's, <laughs> there's no self-check process. If you just look at the percentage of buy ratings and sell ratings on the street, I like to use it for, counter arguments. If I'm long something, I want to find a sell rating, which is hard to find on something. And if I'm short something, I want to find what the long thesis is so that I can get, you know, you know, in front of it. But let's not kid ourselves. It's never been more choreographed in the history of my career than what I've seen out there. So use them how you want, but obviously read every report with grain of salt and I would be cynical. Um, and it's not just about the banking fees and trading fees that people are receiving. The history on Wall Street has always been if you're short and you're wrong, you're going to get fired. And if you're long and you're wrong, you'll still have a job, right? Because nobody likes the person that calls sky is falling and then is proven wrong over a long period of time. Because if you're right, by the way, you're probably not going to get paid eventually because your firm's out of business or your, your business dropped. And if, and if you're wrong, you know, it doesn't pay to, be, to be have sell ratings on the street. It just doesn't. It's just not how it, it is geared. And so... The answer is I use everything I can and I assume everyone's lying. So, you know, uh, so I, I, yeah, I know yeah. someone, I know someone in this room is going to, who would really agree with you. And it's our, our friend Mark. I hope we'll get Mark up here to kind of weigh in a little bit. On oh, this. great. You get another old guy in here to talk. about yeah, this. Exactly. So, so, you know what? I can keep firing questions at you, but let's mix it up a little bit. So I want to bring um, some of the, uh, uh, others into the conversation, by the way, if you have, um, if you have a question and you're requesting to be, uh, heard and I don't know who you are and I haven't brought you up, please send me a direct message. Uh, I'm trying to keep the, the conversation on track. And if I don't know you, um, I need to know what your question is ahead of time. All right. So let's first go to, uh, let's first go to basement. Hey, basement and floor is yours. What's up? Hey, George. Hey, thanks for having these spaces. And, uh, I just want Anybody that's listening that uh, is not familiar with uh, Danny's podcast he does with uh, Danny Nathan and Guy Adami on the tape, it's a must listen. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, question for you, Danny. Um, back during the housing crisis, when you guys put the trade on and bought the, uh, the CDO swaps and the, ra the rating agencies held and uh, you know the banks kept talking their book and the trade wasn't moving like you wanted it to i wonder if you could just kind of talk through what the internal conversations were and um maybe how that might be instructive to you know what, what i think is the uh, the next massive fraud which is which is tesla which i hope you guys get to oh yeah i've heard of that one uh thanks for 
shout out on on the tape. Um, yeah, so we we actually were lucky. So um, Christian Bale's character, obviously, you know, in the in the movie, obviously, he uh, he um, was right for. Uh, he went early in 2004, and if that if that had happened to us, obviously, uh, for a couple year period, we'd have been we'd have probably gotten out of the trade before we ever got to experience. We got very lucky that from the minute that we put this trade on in August or July of 2006, it started to work. And while we were an equity fund at, at the time, we were kind of using, like I said before, in this spaces that the bond market gives you a lot of signals that were going on it was extremely useful to watch what was happening in the fixed income and in the CDO and CDS market to get an idea of what was happening in equities. And what was crazy about it was spreads were widening and fixed income uh, CDS was exploding. And yet the equities had yet to reflect it, um, whether it was a city group countrywide, whatever it would be, it, it made no sense to us. So in the morning I would speak to the fixed income desk before I would speak to the equity desk that would kind of gear us up to, how we would look at the, you know, how we would look going forward um, either for that day, for that week. And so we got lucky. So I just want to be clear that from the, literally the day that we put it on, it started working. And that gave us obviously much more confidence to go even further to in, into the trade. So again, we weren't all in. We had an equity book that we were watching at the same time, but we used it as a tool. So um, the things that we were watching, though, unfold in real time only gave us much more confidence. We kept adding to the trade, buying more credit protection and so forth. Did we think that Lehman would go under at the time? No, I don't think we ever thought that that could potentially occur. But we knew that there was vulnerabilities at all these banks and the, and the banks were, you know, the banks were printing money as long as they could. The radio agencies were printing money as long as they could. And then the music stopped and the government did not understand. And to be frank, neither did we. The amount, the, the spider web that existed within all the financial products around the world that were kind of out there at the time that really caused us. And so, you know, I was not a fan of all the government programs that came in at the time in real time because I'm a big believer in market clearing prices. But when you bring in the, 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 the TARP and the TALF and the PPIP and, and all that stuff, um, you know, coming into play to kind of mask it at the same time and stop the bleeding, I think we got lucky from the standpoint of, we were able to actually get out of that trade and that particular group of assets that existed were never impacted by the government. They never got to them, so to speak. So timing is everything. Um, we got in it and, it and it started working. And so, um, you know, other firms obviously had this trade on. We weren't the only one that obviously was, was out there doing it. But um, yeah, so I just wanted to clear that up that, um, you know, it, it worked for us right away and we used it as a great tool to navigate. So. Yeah, I mean, I look, I don't know if this is getting too far in the weeds, but I, I don't know if you parsed out like Tesla's latest quarter and, you know, the uh, um, the cash flow with Bitcoin and, you know, their warranty yeah. reserves and, and um, you know, I mean, their 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 daily cash balance and, and, and on and on and on. Um, and yeah. it just, you know, how, how that might just be instructive to what. Um, sure. Th yeah, that. Yeah. No, I was going to say. So, I mean, obviously, I just posted a thread on that recently. I just kind of went through and took a step back and I was like to read the cues and go through because I don't listen to it. You know, I, I don't, I think everyone lies to you on all of these calls and, you know, specifically being on a Tesla call um, is like going to a concert versus, you know, really going in and, and seeing what's really happening under the hood. Um, so yes, there's, there is no justification at all for an $800 billion valuation or a seven or a six or a $500 billion valuation. So when you, when a company doesn't trade on fundamentals, you got to be very careful. Certainly if you want to short it on, if it doesn't trade, if it doesn't trade on 
fundamentals, what is the catalyst to make the stock potentially go lower? And, you know, this has been a long time in the making. And obviously, it's been a very painful short for many people watching this. And it's made me lose hope in the capital markets just in general, because obviously, obviously, you want to believe that there's rational people. When I, you know, I've, always, I've said this now for better part of a year, I'll, I'll know that the market's corrected when Tesla finally sells off, because to me, it is everything that's wrong in the markets, right? It, it's, it's got a horrible corporate governance, right? There's no board monitoring anything. There's massive SEC violations, whether it's 8Ks, however you want to, whatever you think is a disclosable, disclosable event or not. You can't, their, their financials are so masked in questions about what is your cash balance on a daily basis or quarterly basis, except for the day that you need to close your books and report, right? Where's the interest income to your point you just made off of that cash? Nothing really adds up. So how does it trade and what does it trade on? I know that eventually um, this thing will crack. You know, I don't know what it's going to be. You know, I can't tell you what that catalyst is going to be. It's always something that you don't think of. But I'll rest my hat on always fundamentals playing out in the longer term. And so you can, I can go on and on about accounts payable, accounts receivable, intercompany dealings, things like it just is what it is. And, and it's, there's so many things going on. It's almost like a negative times a negative equals a positive. We are, we are now immune and it's not just Tesla, it's just in general to, you know, things just occur and occur and you just get used to it. You're like, oh, well, I guess that's normal. You know, there'd be most CEOs would have been forced. Well, all CEOs would have been forced out of their role within a company if anyone acted like that. And it's certainly in a Fortune 500 or Fortune 10 company, you know, with top 10 holding in the S&P. So you're going to get me going on a long tangent. I know that George probably doesn't want to turn this into a, a space is about Tesla, but let's just say that I'm a big believer in bottom up, and it, it, at, at some point this thing will um, will will crack, and it may be something that none of us think about that causes it. But uh, yeah, 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 Danny, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and let's just, um, I really don't want any more discussion about Tesla in this room. No, just because, yeah. just because there's yeah. really nothing to discuss with respect to the fundamentals. We're going to try to argue what what we try to explain what the stock is doing. Mark Hodes is going to speak next. Has had the best. I think fight uh, on this, which is you know, wait till the jaguar falls out of the tree and the jaguar is still up in the tree. So let's just not go there. It's just not a productive use of our time. Thanks for the question, base man. But that's we're just warning everybody else in this room. We're not discussing Tesla anymore today. So now with that, um, we got three. We got wow, a bunch of great great questioners here in a row. We got Mark Otis, we followed by followed by KFab, and then Mark Newman, and then always, hey Mark, good to see you. What's up, man? Mark, please hey, meet yourself. Hey, hey, George. Hey, Danny. We got the hey, we got the the dream teams in here. We got Danny. Uh, we got Danny. We got Porter. We got Vinny. We got Carvana man. We got we got the the gangs all the gangs <laughs> all here. So to the one thing that's in in my head is when do you think investors are going to start thinking about balance sheets with income statements? Because I was on the overstock call this morning you know and they had a horrible sales quarter but they made money and they're generating cash and I, and I think they're just going to put an axe in the head of Wayfair who has a horrible balance sheet and Ryan Combs air conditioned list bed bath and beyond you know when, when do you think people start to look at balance sheets of some of these zombie companies because maybe in this cycle I'm thinking they could go under I'm just curious how you how you and you're looking at yeah, looking I think, at and thinking of this. 
Yeah, listen, you have these non-GAAP, which are out there, the GAAP, which is out there. And I always, you always look to see what is your free cash flow and can your free cash flow cover your obligations? That's pretty simple, right? So that's how I look at it. I don't think anyone, you know, you got to really shake the tree, whether a company actually has a negative event, whether they actually report an earnings loss or whether they start to lay people off or guide down. It makes people take a fresh look at the balance sheet. And I've been saying all along, Companies that you want to own here are the ones with the good balance sheets, the ones that aren't reliant upon coming back to the market uh, to refinance debt or whatever it may be. So, Mark, the answer is therein lies the opportunity, uh, both on the long and the short side, to take advantage of those situations. And, you know, you bring up a good point because companies that have outstanding debt, you know, you can you can watch where they trade on Bloomberg. There are plenty of companies that have debt trading in 60s, 70s, 80 cents, which, by the way, for anyone out there. To me, any, any, to me, anything below 90 cents on the dollar tells you there's a massive credit red flag. And so you want to watch that because you'll have people like on Carvana. You, you just brought up um, Henry, I know, is on the call. But you have people of the Carvana where the debt's trading at 60 cents and people are actually buying the stock. If you think that the, the, the debt's if you, if 60 cents tells you that equity is worth zero. So I like to use those clues. And I know it's not easy for everyone to go out and buy bonds and so forth, but the argument that equity people make on chasing names like that, go buy the bonds. You're at the top of the capital stack and you have much potential better risk-adjusted returns. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I just think you've got to start to look at all things. And I like to look at bond prices of companies that trade out in the marketplace to guide me on where the equity should potentially be. Because like I said at the beginning of this spaces, fixed income people are smarter than equity people. The good fixed income people just is because they're forced to do that bottom-up work on those names on the balance sheet. So, so there, was, there was a Carvana Spaces call, I don't know, maybe a month ago, and Henry ended up coming in, and that asshat Sosin was on there. And these guys were all thinking that Carvana's going to go to 500. So I have a bet with some guy that if Carvana goes to 500 without a reverse split, I'm going to buy him a Cobra. I was and about to goes, say, and, reverse and, split and, would be the only and, way. And, yeah. yeah, and if it goes bankrupt, all I ask for is a kind word. Hey, hey, hey Mark, I, Mark, I, Mark, Mark, I got to interrupt you. You remember, forgot already. You and I are in that room together, and you left that most half, most important part of the bet. If you lose, you were going to, I think, go oh, get 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 dressed up uh, oh, in yeah. a I dress said, and also, serve the guy. I also said, other than the Cobra, I'm going to get wear a dress and serve him breakfast, lunch, and dinner for a week. <laughs> but the funny thing is, is, as you mentioned, if you think something's going to survive like a Carvana, Borrow all the money you can and buy the bonds. Exactly right. Be, be, because, you know, there, there, there's no reason to play with the stupid equity here. Just, just buy the bonds. And, and, I don't, and I don't know what it is that people I – think, I think, George, the next thing is people need to look at balance sheets with income statements to realize what could happen next. Because yeah, some love- of these – because they may they – may, this time around come for these zombie companies let me just say yeah sorry mark i was going to say that you're yes um they'll come for these zombie companies but i just want to say one other thing you also got to watch the people that are involved like ernie garcia the second right and i had when i started looking over a year ago at carvana and just started to look at you know i was like to look at who are who are who are the executives where did they come from and i started shaking up and down and more really in excitement when i realized that this was the ugly duckling guy this is the guy that Steve Eisman and Vincent Daniel Meredith Whitney tagged in 19, you know, 96, 97 for what was going to happen. I'm like, how is this guy who was a convicted felon, right? I mean, what are we talking about here? So, again, 
not just looking at the balance sheet, but looking at who these characters are. It's amazing how people resurface in very different. And, and Mark, I know you've been on that because you, you find the bad actors because they'll do bad things. People don't change over time. So I just wanted to add that aspect to it because I think that that's also important on who the executives are at a company and where they've been and what they've seen. So, sorry. Well, I just, I yeah. just, I just, I just hope and pray Kevin O'Leary decides to run a publicly traded company again. I, I just, I just hope to God that, that I can get just one more shot at him. There you go. I, yeah. I mean, that is, that is just, that is just really, that guy is really something. But, um, <laughs> Mark, stay there, man. This is great. We are getting the dream team together. All right, stay up there, Mark. Let's let's go to KFAB. Hey, KFAB, what's up? Hey, George. Thanks. Um, Danny, you, you uh, said something that was right in my wheelhouse a little while ago with your experience during the GFC about the uh, kind of the shocking spider web and how it had reached and had this kind of uh, hidden interdependencies. Um with that, having lived through that and that experience, and I actually wrote something about this last week, kind of the Schrodinger's cat issue is, you know, is it a, is the cat alive or dead? Uh, can they be at the same at the same time, both at the same time, because some people don't even realize what's going on? Do, do you see, other than the name that shall not be mentioned, uh, do, do you see any uh, things that you see already, like two, three, fourth order effects of this cycle that no one's paying attention to? kind of pockets of interdependency that are screaming to you that are overlooked maybe uh you know uh you know the obvious one to you the, the, the fat pitch that uh has a hidden interdependency in the second third fourth order effect yeah so i mean i you know again i think the passive investing in fixed income in both corporate and u.s treasury um paper is underappreciated. And that's why you see such volatility, obviously, in rates, right, that, that we're seeing going on. I don't think people appreciate um, that aspect of the market and how correlated kind of everything is. As far as just we take a one step back, since we're talking about a spider web, I don't think there's any issues at the big banks. There will be blow ups of little pockets of things, but there's nothing that to me um, is cataclysmic there, obviously, to kind of look for. Now, you can look at these banks' quarters and their balance sheets and start to figure out where the where the problems are, whether it's in a commodity, uh, you know, wh wherever it, wherever it might be. But there is nothing that I'm seeing. What I am seeing is that as rates move higher and the cost of credit and the cost of capital moves higher, we have yet to really price that in that risk premium back into the market. So the one thing that scares me, and I said it at the very beginning, is you have zombie companies that now tend to exist that only exist because of the Fed's policies over the last 13 years and or QE1, 2, 3, and 4 literally buying their paper. So the price discovery has yet to occur. So I don't, you know, I think there's going to be a slowdown in issuance of, of corporate. We're already obviously seeing that. We're seeing calendar on the IPO on the equity side get hit. Again, that sits at the banks, but it's not, it, you know, it's not cataclysmic. There's there's nothing out there that I, that, I, that I fear that the banks are going to be in trouble this time. Could there be a product out there? I mean, look, we've, we've seen what Bitcoin can do just crypto wise, you know, the leverage that's un unaccounted for in the system. Like you get an idea for kind of what's gone on and all these policies which have created kind of this cheap money, <laughs> cheap money print that's been going on. As, you, as cheap money goes to expensive money, um, you know, we just talked about earlier before um, when the tide goes out, um, you can see who's laying around naked. Um, so there's not one thing I'm watching. It's just in general. And really, 
to me, it's that everything is correlated and that people have a false sense of security in some of these passive products. That's kind of how I would leave it. Have you done any work on, on private equity and kind of the mismarking there and, you know, you the know SoftBank and all that wonderful you stuff? Know, SoftBank, obviously, that was a name that, you know, we've looked at for the last several years and, you know, mismarked portfolio to get credit for getting one or two things right and everything else has been wrong. Private equity is interesting because you still have such long duration assets and the whole key, as anyone knows in this entire business, whatever part, part of the business you sit in is that having that, that solves a lot of problems like inability or to not have to basically liquidate your portfolio and or to earn fees that are locked up over a long period of time. Those are solid business models. To your point though, I think you bring up a great point actually. Some of these private marks have yet to, to manifest themselves. One is that there's no uniformity in people that own the same assets across the board, right? You, you, one person may mark it down 20 cents, the other 40. So there's no guidelines for that. The other is that you're starting to see massive markdowns in the private market in the same categories or same sectors as companies that exist in public. And the public markets are trading at a massive premium within those sectors to that, to that group. So there is a lot of dislocation, I think you bring up a very good point in that market. And I think we're only going to see one direction for those to go, which is lower. Um, and so there is leverage there that is a risk, but I'm not running out and shorting Blackstone, you know, off of that, given that they do have such long duration capital, um, you know, ability to survive. So we'll leave it at Dana, that. Yeah, Dana, can I just follow up with a question, uh, staying in that rabbit hole? I look at things like hack or um, higher global um, I'm just kind of getting away from private equity and back to sort of like the growth side of things. There was a great article a couple weeks ago on Twitter. You probably saw it. Someone wrote a piece in called infantilization as a service, you know, whether it's Uber and car rides or DoorDash or, um, all, you know, all, all the stuff people are too lazy to do themselves and they pay for, it. but all these models, which with the unit economics don't work, it can't scale. They're loss making. They're basically just cre creations of, uh, of the most irresponsible monetary policy in history. And they should go out of business. They should have never been in business in the first place. And I look at the, 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 the posers, the fakers, the cheerleaders, or the pom poms, or it's Kathy or Chase Coleman, or all the rest, SoftBank, all part of this ecosystem, this, 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 this web that you would refer to. And I just look at it, and I, I think we made a sort of generational high for that type of madness that we're not going to ever see in our careers again. It's sort of like, you know, we go through different cycles and regimes, and, um, you know, 2021 is kind of like the opposite of uh, 1981 with respect to, you know, valuations, um, growth versus value, all this sort of stuff. And I, I just... I just look at some of the insanity that the, the, the levels of which insanity rose. And as the, um, the great Richard Russell once said, you know, the, the hardest thing to do in a bull market is to stay fully invested. The hardest thing in the bear market is to stay out. And everyone's got this sort of recency bias and they'll look at the, the valuation on, you know, whatever, whatever garbage you want to focus, Uber, whatever, it's all the same to me. And they say, oh, well, look, you know, it used to be at 80 and it's now at 20. It must be cheap, blah, blah, blah. And I, I just think, and there's a question here, I'm rambling, but I'm kind of getting my frustrations out of my system. You don't have to put up with me. And I just look at the the the, the brainwashing. It's understandable. It's a Pavlovian response, the behavior of a whole generation of investors 
Yeah. They know nothing but the great, but the post great financial crisis environment where it's just been pure liquidity driven and it's been growth over value and narrative over fundamentals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I just think if you did nothing but run the other way for the next, you know, few years that that'll kind of put you in the right direction. So I don't know what the question really is there, but I think I'm, yeah, somewhere I think, yeah, well, no. So yeah. What part of that would you want to respond to? I would say this and there's, you can uh, hate the game, but don't hate the player type thing because what you just described, listen, how, how people make money is asset gathering, right? How people, then how, what, what are they forced to do? They're forced to put that money to work. The more that you put money to work, the more you can go raise another fund, right? So that's just the way it is. The problem, and Porter and Vinny and I, and Steve, this was always our philosophy, is that if you want to run a long, short portfolio, you can't do it with tons of assets. It doesn't work. There's nothing you can quote short if you're running a 20 or $30 billion fund. Can you go short the spies? Can you go short a large ETF? Sure, you can bounce out your book that way. And that's where we got to your point. That's, that's kind of where we are. So these firms got too big. Again, hate the game, don't hate the player. They took advantage of what other people were willing to give them. And so it is what it is. And so now to your point, you have large pockets of capital sitting in some of these areas that probably have nowhere to go but down. We're starting to see the markdowns occur. Certainly the quote hedge funds that found themselves in tons of privates, right? Um, and where they could park money and whether they were not inflating returns, but whether it protected returns or whatever it was, that's just what it was. And just so the, the, this vicious or say vicious, but this, this treadmill that we've been on. And again, I go back to the fed printing money and the money being free and the money's allocating out there and pension funds want to allocate into cool hedge funds and cool products. It is what it is, but hate the game. Don't hate the player. And, that, and that's all goes back to we've chased returns. We've, we haven't done any price discovery on either equities or bonds for years. And now that moment has come. And so you better know what you own. And, you know, again, funds are shutting down, right? I mean, so it's, this is not, so, so again, it, it's happening. It's just, it's just a slow train wreck that we're watching. So I think that answered your question, but I, you know, I just wanted to mention, I think that's really what we're talking about. So uh, for more eloquent than I could ever be. Thanks, Jenny. Okay. We're going to go to Newman and then always, and Hey guys, we got Porter in here as well. This is awesome. So Newman always, and then Porter Newman floors yours. Unmute yourself, Mark. Hey, hey uh, Danny, uh, great respect, man. I've, I've known you from uh, afar for over the, the, my career. So I'm happy to ask you a question here. You obviously, had a strong opinion and a correct opinion on how the rating agencies and the CDOs contributed to the massive risk that we saw. And here recently, just in this convo, I've heard you talk about extra over-investing, if you will, nowhere to go. And my part of my thesis here is ESG is maybe the greatest risk in the markets. And on a macro basis, we can see what it's done in under-investing in oil and uh, nuclear energy and leading to macro risk. On the micro side, like you said, people are piling into these names and not knowing what they own, right? Amazon, biggest global footprint, and it's a top three holding at major ESG funds. Then you have guys issuing new ESG garbage, greenwash, called net zero pathway aligned, and the fund looks exactly like every other ESG fund. So part of my concern here is that the rating agencies now in the ESG world captured by Wall Street and <laughs> contributing to this bullshit. And so I wondered your thoughts on sort of, look, you've been around, I've been around. It's not a new thesis of mine that Wall Street garbles fucking products and turns it into a massive risk shit show where nobody knows what they own. And we obviously see it in the macro world. And I also done my work. I see it in the micro world. And I wondered 
your thoughts on the over investment in whatever it is, Amazon, et cetera, and how that plays out. And again, you mentioned as well, the function of Fed interest rates. And I think that is sort of the crux of it. But I wondered your thoughts on ESG potentially being this massive risk that nobody really can quantify, but it's there. I think, you know, ESG is, you know, it started out as a great idea, really corporate accountability for how you run your business. It turned into a marketing tool where a BlackRock will go out and create an ESG portfolio or, um, you know, people that put put together share votes will make sure that they get their seat at the table by you're not doing enough for ESG. And the truth is you can't change a car. You, you can't change a tire on a moving car. And so, you know, the element of kind of, of, of being, being sensible and common sense of how you want to do it. And you're right. Everything came so quickly that money was raised. It was a great excuse to show that you're a good person. And I'm all about the environment. I'm all about social. I'm all about corporate governance, but it, it was done in a way and exploited in a way that it's created these dislocations, I think, which you're referring to the market, and it is complete BS. Now, I'll start, I don't want to mention the stock again, but that large one that's an 800 billion market cap, is, to me, it's so ironic that they even, you know, when they got downgraded, um, their ESG rating got downgraded, everyone was up in arms, but I'm like, all right, I'll give you a little bit on the environmental, but on the corporate governance, horrendous, and on the social, how you treat your employees, horrendous. So again, it is hypocrisy, but again, herein lies the opportunity. Companies themselves should have a program that their employees feel good about, that the shareholders feel good about, that, that they're, not, they're not exploiting ESG for the sake of being owned in an ETF. And I want to bring up one thing, which I think is actually, you just made me think about something else, is if you're the CEO of a company and you know that there's ETFs that runs in the tens of billions of dollars that are associated with ESG, you will start to manage your business to be part of those ETFs. And I go back to even dividend-paying ETFs. ETFs, and this is the problem with passive investing in general, when you become prisoner to your top 10 shareholders, not being human beings, but being algorithms and computers, we have a problem in general. And that all dovetails into this letting a marketing or a theme control your investment process versus the bottom up. So I don't know if I, if I answered your question. Do I think it, 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 it's, being exploited, you know, it's being exposed now? Certainly. But I hope that every company out there is already doing what they should be doing and they make a, con you know, you, you, can't, you can't be an energy company over a long period of time and think that you're going to adhere to these principles that ESG occurs. And yes, is it to blame for some of the lack of CapEx? Yes, it's created some of these issues which are, are, are being amplified, obviously, by situations globally, right? So again, we always take a crisis of some kind to magnify the problems that have always existed. And so it, it brought it out. And it, it is hypocrisy. And I don't, think it's, I don't think it's a problem. I think it's an opportunity to kind of trade or trade around it. So, Yeah, that, that's great. And I just wanted to add one thing on that. As you mentioned, the ExxonMobil story, you know, them offloading assets to like a less scrupulous private equity holder. Maybe it's the Mideast. Maybe it's someone here in the States who we might know. The actual energy equation hasn't changed. But Exxon's visibility in the ESG world has improved because they offloaded assets. And that's, by the way, part of the reason why Tesla fell in the rankings, because Tesla actually didn't change anything. But relative to ExxonMobil, they fell. And then one other last thing, you mentioned the car, Danny. I think that's a great analogy. What I like to think about in the energy world of ESG is we're all on this ship and it's sailing in the middle of the ocean. And the ESG captain has said, we need a new boat. And rather than say, hey, let's go to the stateroom and let's figure out what this new boat looks like. Quick, everyone's coming and we'll figure out what boat we need. 
And I kind of think that's where we are in the ESG energy world. And so thanks for that, Danny. That's really you great. Got it. Um, appreciate that. Uh, thanks. Yep. By the way, for those of you who uh, don't know him, uh, Mark Newman, uh, he's a fr- good friend, a friend of these rooms, um, really smart guy. Uh, he has launched an ETF, Constrained Capital, uh, ticker symbol, if I got it right, uh, O-R-F-N. And, you know, I, I think Mark speaks truth. urge you to check it out. Smart guy. Um, been around and... I think it's going to do extremely well. But again, this is not investment advice through your own work. But if you're looking for a way to think Mark's make, making sense, please check out his ETF. All right, let's move ahead. We're going to do uh, Porter. And Sorry, we're doing Always and then Porter. Always, the floor is yours. Awesome. Hey, Danny. Uh, big fan of your work, especially uh, the podcast that you do with Guy and Dan. But uh, with, with some of the recent, I, I know you're a big fan of the, the cannabis space and course i couldn't let you go in this meeting without talking about it but uh, curious with some of the comments that cory booker had recently in that senate hearing curious what you think about the space and if i might add one last thing you got to get brady cobb back on that podcast big fan of his work as well yeah he's coming on i think in the next week or so so listen i from a macro perspective i, I don't think there's any any question out there how, how strong it is from a micro perspective companies having inability to access normal capital markets, whether they have to use their stocks to trade on the CSE, which is the junior exchange in Canada, to raise capital. It just hasn't been friendly friendly to them. Couple that with the tax code and the, and the banking. So listen, we're at a point right now where I, I think we finally are going to get some type of banking regulation that passes. I think it will be the safe act. I mean, Brady's very, very, very involved in that stuff. So that's why I want to have him back on. So I think cost of capital will start to drop. I worry that some of the incumbent stocks have now been around so long. I mean, these stocks have literally gone down 50%, but their market cap is the same because they've been forced to issue so much equity because this has taken so long to happen. So you have a sector where the CPG companies, whether it's it's alcohol, are waiting. They're the barbarians at the gate waiting to come in for any law change that allows them to go buy up everything in sight. I think you'll see tobacco, you'll see alcohol, everyone come in. So the answer in a nutshell is you have an industry growing like crazy when you look at the tax revenues in Colorado, Illinois. We know it has economic benefits, but the companies can't achieve economies of scale because of the state-by-state basis. It's like running a separate company in each of those states. So therein lies the mismatch. But from a macro perspective, I've never believed in it more. From a micro, you got to be careful that you, know, you own companies that are going to make it through this. And I think there are several that will. It's just going to feel like a NASDAQ 2000 issue where the stocks eventually work themselves through the companies that had a very good business plan and balance sheet and they'll be there so they'll they'll be winners um certainly and you know there's a lot of other names which i think will benefit that provide ancillary services to these companies but we're just we're still in inning three unfortunately we've been stuck here but i do believe real regulation is coming to close it with a comment that you made on booker that was a pivot that he made about banking um schumer is going to back off from full comprehensive bill and i think they're going to pass this thing and Perlmutter, and it's a bi- it's one of the more bipartisan deals and in this economy which we're going to see over the next two three four quarters give me a sector that can produce more jobs and more revenue than that there isn't so leave it at that thanks for the thanks, question Danny. all right yep. let's now move to uh, porter followed by oil god followed by andrew porter good to see you what's on your mind please hey Bray, man hey how we hey, doing good how you doing porter I'm doing great. Right. I'm doing great. I, I'm on Georgia Spaces. Is is a 
a lot of bears on on board, so I'm I'm enjoying it. So, my my sort of question and and, and uh, storytelling is that, you know, James Aiken, who, who's who's been a longtime friend of ours, obviously, and he came into our office when in 2012 or 11 when Mario Draghi did his whatever it takes, and he came to us and says, you know what your guys' problem is? You think too much, and he goes, it's, guys, it's time for you guys to, to stick your head in the sand and not think so much about markets and just follow the flow of, of what, you know, the stupid central banks are doing and and sort of ride the liquidity wave. And as, as I sit back and think about that now and think about this environment where it's the 100% complete opposite of that environment, it's time for everyone to pull their heads out of their asses and, and look what's going on. And you sort of have this peak fed and, and everyone, you know, is on the, on the, the conference calls. And, and frankly, I don't even listen to it anymore because it's all, it's all BS and it's all, you know, plate spinning type stuff. And so, you know, my question to you, Danny, is that, you know, obviously we know monetary policy acts with a lag and, and the, the lag's coming. And, you know, how do you think that like just the, the, the mismatch and everyone's buying ETFs and, and trying to day trade? And, and as George points out, like people are just missing the forest through the trees of, of fundamentals deteriorating. The liquidity is coming out of the market. You know, the, look at the, the high yield ETFs. Volumes are way down. And that's the, the lifeblood of all these junk companies. Right. Mar- Mark Cahoes yeah. talked about Wayfair. And yeah, how are these companies, you know, or Carvana, how are they going to access capital? And so just talk to your, you know, your thoughts about this cycle. And, and you know, we get frustrated how long it takes to play out. So just give yeah. us your two cents on that. All right. So let me just comment on J.I., as we, as we call him. Um, he's been incredible. He was a huge help to us, even when he was writing notes from a small island when he, when he, was, he was still on the sell side at UBS. So he goes way back and having worked at AIG, he got to see the inner workings of everything that was going to occur. So, you know, Porter, just as an example, he hit me three years ago or four years ago on Tesla. And he, he called me, he goes, you're too smart. Stop wasting your time. You're going to get frustrated. And again, he was right. So anyway, um, the, the it really comes down to don't fight the Fed on the way in or global central banks printing and don't fight it on the way out. And it's really that simple, right? So there was no price discovery as you Vinny and myself were, were running Seawolf at the time. We wanted to believe that, you know, we could, we could make money, that we could create alpha, which we did, we did fine. But we were, we were, you know, we were hurt by the fact that the yield curve was being totally manipulated in a sector that we covered, financial services. And we were doing brain damage to ourselves by trying to, trying to do fundamental work. And it hasn't mattered for so long. And it's such a lost art. And now here we are. This is, I said it a year ago. This would be the greatest stock picking environment and bond picking environment that we're going to have, in, I think, in this generation. And it's here. The problem is, if you think about the average Robinhood, which is now literally losing accounts by the day, the average age of the Robinhood trader was 32 years old at its peak. Think about that. They hadn't seen anything other than the global central bank prints money and has your back. So here we are. Horrible Wall Street research, except for a few that are out there, including some global strategists like Aiken and other people that are out there that people should be listening to that understand the plumbing in the markets and how it works. So when you wake up and you see the reverse repo market imploding, you're trying to figure out what does that mean and what can I take away from it? 
All those things are now going to start to matter on the way out. And so your, your point, Porter, is that risk has been mispriced for 13 years, and now it's not. And the Fed has been begging you to sell stocks. Fed is telling you to sell stocks, and no one's listening for the most part. Some of us are um, screaming at an old man, screaming at a cloud. But, you know, it's, it's here now. And so the answer, I think, to your comment or question is, get, you know, start to do work on bottom up. The whole, everyone on this, on this space is, loves the market, loves the history of the market, is passionate about it, loves the characters in it, and all these things. And we are now being given an opportunity to do work on names that you can make money on, on the long side and on the short side. And I think that lost art is now coming back in full circle. I mean, think about the amount of hedge funds and people that we know that have shut their funds down. Smart people that you want in the marketplace looking at stocks. You want them buying and shorting stocks. You, and it's gone. I mean, it's gone. So that's coming back. So I think your performance with Vinny, since you guys dumped me, through, is, is, speaks volumes. Um, how, you, how well you guys have done in this kind of environment, being able to look through other sectors other than banks and financial services. And there is a huge amount of opportunity out there. So I'm excited. You know, I guess I'll say this. I'm excited that for the first time in 13 years, you actually can create alpha uh, in this market. So I don't know if that answers I mean, your the, question. The amazing, yeah. the amazing thing is, Danny, you know, you were jumping around and, and talking about it. And, and we were, too. And Henry was about, you know, Upstart and Carvana and, and just the, the financialization so much of these companies. And listen, you know, financing stuff is 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 really easy when when markets are are really easy um but y you made the comment said listen you know in in three months time the tech guy is going to go over to the financial services guy and goes what's the securitization what, what's what's a uh a, yeah. a loan loss and and sure enough that's exactly what happened and you know fundamentals are starting to matter for the first time in a long time and and you know Let me buying etfs is it, to me, it's yep. useless. I've never, I've never been a proponent of buying ETFs, and you know, I'm a single stock guy, um, and I just, you can control your risk much better that way. For those that are out there, just to, let me just say, a, you know, another hammer on the Wall Street banking research system is that when a company comes to these firms to raise capital or, or you know, go public or whatever, it's the bank's job to silo them into the appropriate category. So Porter just mentioned Upstart quote, tech platform, a tech company. Fine, stick it in tech banking, tech multiple, multiple revenues. Don't look at earnings. Don't look here. Don't look, don't look that they're using a rent -a bank to grow their business and they're completely reliant that if their performance of their credit starts to deteriorate, that those banks will cut off their lines. The same way that these mortgage companies, subprime mortgage companies had credit lines from the banks. They looked like these incredible money-making machines, yet all it took was just a line of credit being cut to make them go out. That's what happened. And I called the buy now, pay later, which is the affirm short now cover later a year ago, because I kept saying this is and Vinny always says you cannot commoditize lending. If you're growing your lending faster than GDP, you will have an under you have an underwriting problem. You can't use AI for lending and all this stuff. And again, it becomes you feed the machine and it's self-fulfilling. So, again, it's so interconnected in the, in the web that's out there and, you know, Companies like this that emerge, and so anyway, it's a it, it was yeah. all bullshit. They they talked about this AI lending strategy. It was only during the downturn where they're like, oh, we, we got to change our assumptions. Yeah. For, for the what, what are we talking about? They were just all they were stratifying, you know, customers. They had no concept of history of the credit cycle. They were they were the most aggressive 
at the end of the cycle. It, it just yeah. it's freaking crazy. So you got me. So, so, it's so frustrating. Yeah, let me let me jump in. I want to ask a question for both Danny and Porter. And Mark, three of you. We got murderers all up here. I'm gonna Porter first, second Danny, third Mark. Um, relative to the opportunity set of the last uh say thirteen years, um how would you describe this? It's softball questions, T ball time, I'm sorry. This is for you, Porter, first. How would you describe your confidence in your ability to outperform the market right now if you were running a long only fund? Well, th- thankfully, I don't run a long only fund. And, and, and Vincent and I sort of started a, uh, we call it Seawolf 2.0 after. Yeah, right, right, right. Let, let me recast the question. How would you, how would you characterize the opportunity set right now, given, given the way the character of the market's changing? Well, I'll give a Danny style confidence. This is the best stock pickers market. Let let, let me just let me just chime in, George, because (laughs) these these guys. Hey, Mark, we can't hear you. These guys, Porter is too diplomatic. I think Porter and his fund are up 85 percent in the first half. So, so his confidence level should be very high because he's knocking it out of the park. I mean, he is knocking the cover off the ball. So I'll answer it for him. His confidence level, sky high. But he's too good of a guy to say that. And my man, Henry, you know, the guy who had Carvana, I think he's, yep. I think he's up 225% in the first half. So these guys who do their work, and guys who can figure it out, this is their time because they're seeing the pitch and they're doing the work while others don't even have a clue what the work is. That's the trick. That's what experience and and being good at your craft gets you because I can brag about these guys and they're my friends and I'm very proud of them, very proud of them, and I'm lucky they still talk to me. But, but if you know what you're doing and stick to what got you to the major leagues, you can kill it here. You can absolutely kill it. And these guys have killed it. So I just wanted to give that editorial comment before Porter actually answered that. So there you go. Well, Mark, 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 thank you for that. Because, I mean, Porter is a gentleman and he does it by the book and you can say things he can't say. So, Porter, I don't know. Well, after that, I, 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 I'll, I'll, tack, I'll tack on one or two things. Listen, the, the 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 structure, the market structure has been just completely bastardized by algos and ETFs. This is my opinion, of course. Uh, algos, ETFs for so long that you know they, they just leave. You know, to talk about what Dane was talking about in terms of you know, they, they put upstart in the wrong bucket. That was just an opportunity for guys like myself who are stock pickers. And, you know, frankly, this room is probably a bunch of stock pickers. And the same way that ESG completely destroyed oil and, and uh, energy stocks. And, you know, so the, you know the, our, our trade basically this has been this year has been long energy and, and uh, you know, short bullshit. And, you know, I, even after the sell-off, you know, they, they were completely overextended um, and the, the energy stocks had a, had a big sell off. And, 
you know, if you do the work and you know your names, you don't get scared. You actually buy more rather than, you know, sell. And listen, I'm very nervous of a, of a recession. Obviously, we're here. But, you know, you, you still know the cash flows and you still know the ability to go to the bottom of the well, pick, buy more stocks and, and know where the bottom is, know where the value is. No, 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 you know, even in, you know, I, I, we underwrite stocks under a really depressed, you know, bad scenario. And so, you, you know, your, your ability to buy stocks at those levels when people are freaking out and everyone's dumping stocks at the same time, you know, the, the uh, I think it was upstart when they squeezed us in Q3 or Q4 last year, the stock rallied 50%. We were short the crap out of it. And so th- that's why I think, the, you know, the, the, you look around and Twitter or you talk to everyone, so many people are confused and it's confused everywhere. And I think if you just stick to your fundamentals, ignore the Fed's, you know, uh, rhetoric BS, because they're, they're, they don't know what's going on, clearly. You know, they're, they're, they're spinning plates and, uh, you know, stick to the data. And I, that's why I'm, I'm, you know, just so bullish about the stock pickers market. I, I, this is the most fun I've had in, a, you know, since 07, 08. Uh, let me just interrupt before we go any further here. I'm just going to, I have to be careful what I say here. Um, the fact that you guys are having so much fun and, and by the kudos to you, Port, I'm really happy for you. That's awesome. And, 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 and it's just great to hear. It gives me some hope. Um, you probably are all aware I have filed for an ETF, um, which is in registration, get waiting approval from the SEC, which is basically going to be a uh, a long, short, absolute return fund. Um, and I can't speak about exactly, you know, strategies at this point, but we're in registration. And it's a lot of the opportunities that you're talking about, the um, – the dispersion, the extremes, the, the disequilibria, which I, I just think this is a golden age for stock picking. It's that's why after uh, you know a dozen or so years, actually more, thirteen years of uh, not running public money, I went and got my uh, bat and glove. I'm going to get back in the ring. So um, I hope I. And by the way, Danny, you were talking before. You want this, 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 just get it over with, and hope you know everything should crash and just let's get on with it. No, no, I want, this, <laughs> I want this to be a long drawn out of fair yeah let me just say let me dovetail on porter's comment you know i I think it's really key to understand what is your duration of capital that you have if you have outside investors that are redeeming because they have issues in other parts of their portfolio outside of you you are beholden to them so in a perfect world you have long duration capital to take advantage of the nonsense that occurs in names like an upstart for a period because let's be clear if you're running an institutionalized hedge fund and you know you got to write that quarterly report do you really want that thing out there if you know it's not going to come? You know, so I think behavioral finance aspect of that combined with duration of capital, it, you got to put two things together, right? And I think so reporters saying and Porter and Vinny have been out there really managing most of it, their, their money for a period of time, which is better than anything else. Um, it's given them the ability not just to think clear, but not have to worry about because it's just the, the truth is in the real world, of institutional money management, you have to deal with that stuff. It's a distraction. It is what it is. It's good, it has good parts and it has bad parts. So I think you need to kind of delineate that aspect of the business right now. And I think for, for someone that deals with any individual, no individual has, has to report, well, tell, tell people how they're doing, but it's your money. So you can do what you want with it. So I think it's key to understand that aspect. And I'll just add that 
for better or for worse, a lot of the hedge funds are, are you know are, are coming out of the market and have been now for several years. And I don't care if you're long, or you're, you want those hedge funds around because shorts are a, a, a buyer of your stock, it's a buyer of that stock at some level, barring bankruptcy. They are they are they have pent up demand for you know a name that's out there, and they help the markets function. So we won't talk about short selling on this. Call, but let's just say that I think it's an important part of the market that people tend to, to blame or misguide. So anyway, couldn't agree more. Um, let's go to a couple. I want to take this a little bit out of order. Oil guy, I'm going to ask you to hold it for a second just because I want to keep the continuity of this thread going. And uh, Mark, um, Henry's here now. So uh, Henry, uh, welcome. Please unmute yourself. Hey, George. Hey, Danny. How's it going, guys? Thank you for, uh, for having me. Henry, who's up two hundred and twenty-five percent, and and he's so he's so driven. He complains to me when he has a drawdown, and I said, "You're up two hundred and twenty-five percent. It's it's okay, you know, it's totally fine. Just just keep doing whatever you're doing to get you up a deuce and a quarter. Keep doing it. You know, I just agree. keep doing what you're doing." I but, appreciate you know, that, Mark. You're you're a nice guy. We're all in this because not, we are Henry, competitive Henry, people, Henry, and we want to like, we want to do the best. So, Henry, I like is, I like about sixteen and five eighths people, and the rest of the people I can't stand. So <laughs> I happen to like you. So I appreciate that. Okay, so I have a question for uh, for Danny or for George or whoever wants to take it. You know, it's it's interesting. We have a lot of very smart financial. Uh, guys on here that are risk averse, humble, think about what they don't know. And so, you know, it, it's common for us to bemoan the the meme stocks, to, to look at guys that either grew too big or weren't uh, thinking about risk in the way that they should during the last couple of years or the last decade or more. And all roads lead to the Fed. Uh, we can argue, you know, to what degree and uh, whether we're sort of where are we in that. But I guess, you know, as someone who is a concentrated and often contrarian investor, the three most important words for me always are maybe I'm wrong. And so I guess maybe just to play devil's advocate, you know, to to get into something that Danny uh, Porter, you guys are very familiar with last time around which was the too big to fail, the moral hazard issue. You know, the reason that we're seeing this jawboning, I think, other than the, um, you know, the buy the dip or the algo kind of driven market is that a lot of guys are thinking many of these names, these mispriced, super risky, um, return-free kind of risk assets are too big to fail or that the bailout is coming. And so I guess, you know, the question is, how do you think about that? Uh, how, do, how do you think about that probability or scenario unfolding? Can I, can I Danny, I, let me just take a shot at that before you go, Danny. So Henry, that's a great question. And actually, I'm emboldened by what I believe to be is the answer to that question, which is, it's not the banking system's integrity at stake here. I mean, you know, I actually view, and CODIS didn't make me say this. I've said this before. I'll say it again. I actually think blowing up DoorDash, having Uber go bankrupt, having Peloton go away, 
These are all good things. These are positive things. These are good for the economy. I know people think I've lost my mind. No. What I mean by that is we've seen such a gross misallocation of resources. This has to stop. You know, I, I can't remember how many hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars were spent on Tesla call options last year. You combine that, I think, with total energy capex of $100 billion. Talk about misallocation of resources. Right. Tiger Global needs to go out of business. Kathy Wood needs to go bankrupt. All right. Then we'll start allocating capital properly. So, no, I'm not. Now, listen, obviously, if this all goes down the shitter. Yeah. I mean, you know, there are a lot of lines of credit. The banks will be in trouble. I'm probably all I get all that kind of stuff. But on first round, who takes first loss? It's not the banking system. It's sitting in. Unfortunately, now it's sitting in the portfolios of a lot of 401ks because, you know, the electric car company, which shall not be named, even that's in the goddamn S&P. All right. This stuff has to stop. It will stop. It is stopping. This is the way the, the system is healing. Sorry to get up on my soapbox. Danny, over to you. No, I mean, we're weaning off of a drug here with the Fed, and that never is easy to do. And if you're a short seller or you're a fundamental investor, you want to believe that you're not you, you, you aren't going to be impacted or have to worry about this bogeyman that's coming. Um, whether it helps you or hurts you, it's just a tough thing to factor in. And I think, to your point, will there be credit lines that get put out by the Fed if things go haywire? I 100% think that they will be. To think that the, that the Fed's not going to react at some point or come back you know, to the markets if they need to, I think is... Now, that, that is a lot lower from here. That's a, we're talking sub-3,000 on the S&P if those, those things start to occur. Um, you know, listen, they were buying during COVID. This same Fed was using the HYG and J&K and going out and buying things. I mean, come on. Like, there's right. a, it's, it's just crazy. So I'm not arguing with you. I'm just saying, like, this is me exploring, you know. my. So you do all this work on a company. You go short it. You see the, the credit's trading at 50 cents on the dollar. All of a sudden, the Fed comes in and sticks out a line for $100 billion for high-yield companies that are triple B or lower to access. And what do you do? Stock goes up 150%. You got to sit there and take it. So the answer to your question is PTSD from the Fed will always be there. It's going to be there for years until proven differently. And so that has to be in your mindset for better or for worse and in your risk management protocol of how you're looking at certain things and use options here instead of stock and do all this, protect it. So the answer is yes, it does go in because it's, it's sitting there um, with the devil and angel on your left and right shoulder. So. That's uh, I don't know if I answered your question, Henry, but listen, at the end of the day, two, seven offsuit, bluff, 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 meme stocks. You got to show your cards at some point. And so that game can go on for 10 minutes or it can go on for, you know, five years. But eventually fundamentals matter. And that I'm a believer in and I will always be a believer. in. So absolutely. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Hey, um, we'll go to the next speaker. But, um, well, God, you're next in line. If yours is an energy question, I'd like to hold it. If you got if you want to speak to what we're talking about now that's great um we'll get to you if it's energy i just want to i just don't want to go i like the thread we're on right now so oh god do you want to speak now or do you want to hold it a little bit thank you george i've got an inflation question and then i've got one on liquidity and hedge funds and then i do have an energy one but we can come no, back i tell you what the, the first two are fine but the energy question let's not go there on that. energy we'll save it for later go ahead Olga. thank you for the permission george very humbled uh and nice no to come on come on come on dude it's just like you know, people love when we stay on point, I just don't want to go all over the place. Not that I'm trying I'm to avoid it. Again. I just, I, I just I don't want to go there now. So, Dan, uh, nice to see everybody in the murderer's row, as George says. And, George, you're absolutely right. Um, it is murderer's row. 
with respect to inflation expectations, you used the analogy of ESG earlier of, um, you know, trying to change a tire while moving a car or the boat analogy. Um, so in your opinion, I mean, just using rational thought, is inflation expectations in your camp just set to continue to run hotter and, and lo- for longer? Because obviously yesterday's short covering Fed fake out uh, I thought was absolute bullshit. And so that's my first question on, you know, how are you baking in your inflation expectations moving forward? And then the second one with respect to the hedge funds, what percentage of the closing do you think has to do with what we call saleability? Because if you look at the things that are actually working in the market, and we're not allowed to use the word energy at this point of the show, uh, but if you look at the things that have been u- working this year, it seems like the people with the most money in the world, the people would be the clients of the hedge funds, aren't necessarily receptive to be purchasing those types of, you know, investment solutions or, or positioning of a portfolio looking forward. So are they closing because they can't sell what it is that's going to work or are they closing because they genuinely have no clue what to do? Back over to you. So, I mean, I so on that last point, when I was talking about hedge funds that are closing, it's just that either they're, performance has been poor or they were caught on the wrong side of, of a short squeeze and exposed in the media, which created a whole nother issue. Or to the point I made before, you get to a size and a fund and it's just impossible, especially in a market like this. You're truly just a long only. You can't run net short. So what you're supposed to do when you charge these fees in a hedge fund is to you know provide risk management uh, to be able to obviously benefit or produce in any you know down market or up market, and they they just got too big. So so I think just the realization of those business models market themselves in one way, but in actuality are just long only shops and you know wolves and sheep clothing or whatever. Um, so that's that's the first part. Second part, I think um, question about inflation expectations. I mean, the biggest fear for the Fed has been kind of wage price spiral, right? It's been the the, the if people believe that inflation is going to keep happening, it's self fulfilling that it's going to occur. The problem with that is that even wages, which I think are the sticky part, you either get laid off, you don't get your wages dropped, you get laid off, you get fired, which is a whole other unemployment issue, aren't keeping up with inflation. And this is stagflation. You know, I've, I've talked about this for a long time. That's kind of where we are. But again, nothing looks now like you learned in history books. This, everything, this is its own cycle. So I don't think we're, I think this is the most unique cycle that combines a piece of the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and the 2000s all into one right now. And so, that's why I think people that have been around long enough to, to not trade through all of it to be history of the markets and behavioral finance to me is a lost art. And I think that's coming back the more that we stock pick that has a massive aspect that comes back there and lies the opportunity. I think inflation has peaked. However, from a supply chain perspective and geopolitical risk, Ukraine, and, and if you just look at Germany, how do you start to quantify having, not having power? I mean, I don't think people have realized yet that, that maybe people in Germany have and people in UK that are paying 100, 500 times the amount that we pay for energy right now, that's a massive issue. So you have, you, have, you, have, you have inflation being measured in energy and things that we can't control. I don't care how much you produce an ESG perspective, but that would still have been an issue that Russia is controlling that pipeline, Nord Stream. But how do you factor in that? And that's stagflation. That's high inflation that literally halts economic growth. And so I'm not tracking inflation expectations necessarily. I'm tracking consumer confidence expectations and then watching inflation as a gauge. And I think it's peaked. What that means is not meaningful because relative to wages and everything, like I just mentioned, 
purchasing power is diminishing regardless. And so that to me, to bring that all the way back to kind of fundamentals and how to the, or the macro, how you look at the markets, that what that's what matters more. I don't know if I answered your question, but I, you no, know, that I, was I excellent. Looked, okay. Yeah. Dan, thank you. No, you answered it. It was a very tough and convoluted one, but I agree. That's with all you. good. <laughs> You've got you've got right, right. you've got a, a situation that is just literally spiraling out of control. George, I give it back to you. Yeah. Oh God, hang around. We'll come back to you on oil in a little bit. Um, I just wanted to keep keep the George. Table. What's our time on this? Uh, so, gotta, so, so, Danny, you go whenever you want. You've been more than generous. Okay. Time. We I have this bad habit of running these rooms for two two and a half hours, but I was thinking we would keep you for an hour. You're, you're you're in overtime now, man. So you know. I'll hang on for five more minutes if that's hang, cool. That's great. If you okay. don't, that's 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 totally cool. It's a real it's a real treat, pleasure to have you here. Let's go to Andrew. Andrew, please unmute yourself. Oh, oh hey, Danny. Uh, great spaces. Thank you. Um, just wanted your take on the buyback spigot. Um, do you think it'll be turned off all at once? We've seen Starbucks, J.P. Morgan, and uh, Best Buy recently, but it's it's been a little slow in in my opinion. I think that's company specific. Um, you know, I, I do look at those things, obviously. Balance sheets have a big impact on your ability to buy back stock. JP Morgan and many of these other banks would be buying back stocks hand over fist if they didn't have to adhere to some of these ratios, capital ratios, risk stress, stress test type stuff. So it's very, you know, it's, it's hit or miss. But you did have a slew of companies that were borrowing at zero, basically, and just buying back stock. And the point that Mark Hodes made earlier and that I made before, that's not a sustainable earnings driver. You can lower your share count with that, but you just leveraged your balance sheet. And what is the duration of that debt that you took out in order to buy back stock? So eventually, that money is no longer free. So I think a lot of the buybacks had to do with literally borrowing at zero and just buying back stock. And by the way, that's what companies are supposed to do. If you want to increase shareholder return, go buy back stock, do whatever. When you talk about the energy sector and you want to look just to bring that back up for a second, these companies could literally buy back half their companies with the cash flow that they're <laughs> so so I like to look at it and see what is the ability of a company to do it versus are they actually doing it and what is the inability of a company to do it because it's a very stock by stock basis and it can be a very powerful to tool or it can be something that's masked that's been used for so long in a company that you think they're or all they're doing is decreasing shares outstanding to grow their earnings so anyway long long-winded answer to your question but there is no uniform answer to that so hey, hey danny two two let me drill a little bit further on that one two questions one i got a, i got a real problem with companies like american airlines who you know or boeing who you know buy back let's just say american airlines they buy out they buy back billions and billions of dollars worth of stock have a crappy balance sheet then the shit hits the fan and they go they go panhandle ask the government for a handout one and then two, um, the extent just more generally with which company management just abuse, um, you know, stock buybacks. Any thoughts on that, on either of those two points? Yeah, well, the airlines are a whole nother. Don't get me started on those. I mean, times are great for them. They overcharge the consumer. Times go bad. They get bailed out every single time over and over again. Now you just bring up, you made me think of something else, which is stock-based compensation, which is a whole nother thing that should be looked at. You know, people excluded in their earnings report. Why are you excluding Stock-based comp is part of your operating earnings. It's you're, you're, you're not paying people. And so this whole EBITDA, this whole X-based comp, that's a whole nother issue. But yeah, capital intensive. No, you mean you yeah. actually want to pay attention to gap earnings? Like yeah. You're a dinosaur, dude. Exactly. So anyway, <laughs> so this all goes back to the same place. You know, again, bottom up, understand what you own. Fundamentals will matter. None of this has mattered for years and now it does you're going to take you're listen to these look at these companies when 
we are just at the beginning of earnings pre well, we're already pre-announcing, but earnings degradation. So it's just beginning. So we are. So what happens? You get put under the microscope. If you're put under the microscope and people get run scared, they're going to say, why is the stock selling off? Why? And then they'll start to say, oh, why weren't any of those research analysts on the sell side mentioning any of this? You know what they all do, the research analysts? They'll downgrade all of these stocks down 70 to 80 percent. Because at the end of the day, when they know there's nothing left to squeeze from them, oh, no debt, is no debt issuance I can issue, I can help you with, no buybacks I can do on my desk for you. No, you know, this, it, it, that's where we're going. So answer your question is, a company with tons of debt that goes to buy back stock and leverage their balance sheet more, is that the best opportunity for shareholder growth that they have? If it is, you should be really scared. So, all right. So, Danny, yeah. stay for one more one more speaker. Because, by the way, put put Vinny up in my spot when I leave. If he's on, just put Vincent up there. I don't well, know if he's still... he's got to raise his hand. Uh, okay. So, so the smartest guy in the room always sets us straight. Uh, our good friend uh, Cantro, Michael Cantrowitz. So, Cantro, I hope you've been triggered by uh, some of what's being discussed, or you've been quiet in the audience. So, welcome. What's on your mind, Michael? Hey, George. Hey, Danny. Uh, thanks for thanks for doing this. Uh, I jumped in a little late, so I missed the big part of the beginning. So I look forward to listening to the replay. Um, just want to ask Danny. You know, a lot of the things you know I hear you saying, I, I totally uh, agree with. And you know, what, what we're struggling with, and we have a view that you know we're in two back to back bear markets. The first part came from higher rates. The next part's going to come from the impact of higher rates on earnings and employment. Pushback we get nonstop is, oh, it's all priced in. So hat, one, I want to ask you how do you think about what's priced in which is you know the argument people are making that you know all of a sudden everyone can see everything much clearer than they ever have in the past that versus the lag of tightening and that knowing that we're going to see a lot more a lot much more of a downturn over the next year or so and yeah. how you're balancing the peak of one problem potentially inflation and the ongoing rise of the next problem and, you know, how markets are responding right now. Thanks again. This whole market has been about immediate gratification. It's been the gamification of the markets, whether it's trading in Coinbase, gambling on DraftKings or trading on Robinhood. And so people are seeing things in an hour, a day or a week type of environment. So that argument you just kind of talked about that you get that question. That's why, you know, that's why, you know, we're nowhere near the bottom. Um, because we haven't even begun to see. I mean, the Fed hadn't even really raised rates yet when market conditions were tightening, when financial conditions were already tightening. It was already happening. We have yet to see. I mean, rates are still so low historically. We haven't seen anything yet of what this might look like. So my answer to that would be it is a lag. It is happening. And that's why I think we're going to continuously see. I mean, you're already seeing what can happen just from a small raise. Because think about it. Companies are reporting now what the Fed hadn't even gone, what, twice I think by the time that the second quarter had closed, maybe three times, I, I got to go back and look. But we had just started this rate cycle. So I go back to why would the Fed pivot or why would the Fed, you know, reverse course? It'd be because things deteriorated rapidly. And there's no way that rapid deterioration in fundamentals is being priced in to the market. And you still have quantitative tightening to reckon with, which has just begun. And the market will front run that trade. And that's why credit spreads are widening. That's why mortgage spreads are widening because they're front -running. That's not going to undo itself quickly. So answer that question. And then your second thing was on inflation, I believe. You said, how do I think about it as it relates to kind of yeah, market? I guess, market you know, what are you looking for that will potentially eventually squash the euphoria of inflation peaking as the lag effect kicks in of all the tightening? 
Yeah, because I, I think I just said, so I think that you'll have sustainable inflation. It will work its way back down over time. It has to. I mean, whether it's in a quarter, two quarters, three quarters, or four, it, it will. But why would it work its way down? Because demand is what the Fed wants to see drop off of a cliff, which it will. So I like to think of it more, not as an absolute, but how do I think about it company by company on what supply chain freeing up means, what, you know, just look at Walmart and kind of what they're saying. To me, they're a proxy for a lot of things, um, you know, that, that, that are going on. Like, what, what is the consumer spending money on? Consumer's not spending money on goods, spending money on services, right? Because that just take those pieces of information and it doesn't take a brain surgeon to look at the one of the largest components of the inflation print um, that we saw last month was from gasoline. Well, you can com you can compute and figure out quickly that that means that we've seen at least during this next several months or several quarters peak in inflation. But how do you how do you extrapolate that into what that means on the macro and how do you extrapolate it to what it means on the micro? And I think, you, you know, you you have to do both. Right. You have to kind of try to guess how the market's going to react to something. But that's there's no right answer for that. I just kind of use it um, separately. What that means to, when I see gasoline inventories a certain level that tells you where gasoline is going right so again there's um demand destruction began three months ago from the fed raising once or twice or indicating that they were going to or indicating the end of quantitative easing and reverse to quantitative tightening so there's a lot to manage out there that was a long-winded answer there is because there is no one answer to that <laughs> to that question so um i don't know if i hey, touched it yeah hey, thank hey, you thank Thanks, Kendra. Hey, Danny, before you go, your pal Vincent's here. So, Vincent, you want to say hi to Danny? I know hey, man. What up, Danny? Can you guys hear me? Yep. Vinny, take my spot. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go off after you ask this question. So what do you got? Will do. I don't have a question. I just, I just got a few statements. And I'll be quick. George, what you're doing for investors on Twitter is incredible. You mentioned and referenced sell-side research and the like. I think Porter and I can attest that the majority of our research budget or just brain matter is spent on Twitter. When we have ideas, we go down rabbit holes on Twitter and we use the sell side far, far, far less than we did when we were institutional money managers. So the stuff that you're doing, I thank you. And it's fantastic. Um, and I'm just going to on the tape on a weekly basis. It is by far the most entertaining and informative combined podcast there is in podcastville and there's a ton of them but they they do an incredible job and danny you're the best thanks you know man right, well that's because we have you guys on you know as guests all the time so they, and they're and they're coming back soon so so uh stay and, tuned and, so and thanks to answer the question that i if, if i could answer a question that was asked before in terms of when are we going to see inflation decline like I, I i have i have an odd view maybe it's not odd i actually think the leading indicator in a financialized economy is the rate of interest. It's by far the most important thing that matters. So, so as rates rise, the economy slows down. Conversely, if rates decline, financial conditions and economic activity picks up. So to me, the Fed's in kind of a pickle. They, they, they want to stop tightening. They don't want this. But if they, if they stop like or blink like they apparently did yesterday, the first thing that happens is the price of oil goes up, the, the, the break-evens start to go up, and inflation expectations go up. So I, I really don't know how they get out of this um, over the next year or two. I mean, they're really in a pickle. It's in a bad spot, and then I'll shut up. Vinny, why don't you just say the word? 
Vinny, why don't you just say other side of Goldilocks? I can't, I can't say, say it. it. But, I can't say it. Okay, other side of Goldilocks. Yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> That's a great point, though. Well, I, I, one of my rallying cries, I haven't, Danny, you haven't been in my rooms that much, but I keep saying to people, you know, Tina is dead. FOMO is dead. Goldilocks is dead. I mean, I don't know what the, we're going to get. I'll tell you one thing we're not going to get. We ain't getting Goldilocks. She's gone. There's an APB out for her. She ain't been seen. She's six feet under. She ain't coming back. And that's what this 13-year haunted house of a stock market monetary experiment has given us, Goldilocks. And she is gone. Gone forever. So, anyway, that's just my two cents. Danny, you've been more than generous with your time. Um, You know, I hope you'll come back. This has been absolutely awesome. It's been one of the best rooms we've had. And this has just been terrific. So, thank you. you. Thank you, you, Danny. Thanks for all you do. All right. See you guys. Yeah, thanks, Danny. All right, let's move on here. We're going to go to Blake and then Zach. Blake, what's up? Blake, please unmute yourself. Hey, guys. Can you hear me? Yeah, we got you. Hey, so I am um, far less experienced than you guys. So, and I'm not normally like experienced with putting my thesis out there. So, I just wanted to ask if anyone follows RCL as a short. um, And I guess I'll just give you things that I'm going off of and see what y'all's comments are. Is this, wait, hold on. This RCL is in Royal Caribbean. Is that what you're talking about? Royal Caribbean, yeah. yeah okay, all right. Go ahead. Yep. Um, the one thing I did like was this is the first time a uh, sell-side an- uh, analyst had called them out, so to speak, on the conference call this morning. Um, Steve from Stifle, uh, the very first question was about their uh, refinancing their debt and how they're going to deal with it. And, of course, um, Jason Liberty dodged the question, basically. Um, but they do keep maintaining that they plan to refinance all of their maturities and I've done the numbers um, on their posted public schedules on their website. So through 2023, um, and I'm using that number the next six quarters because um, what I'm getting at, I'm not sure they're going to be able to pass the audit or get a clean audit at the end of Q4 this year. So through 2023, they're going to have to be able to basically prove that they think they can uh, repay $2.2 billion. And this is just ship payments that are backed because um, they don't really advertise it, but they deferred um, $1,700,000,000 of ship payments through COVID. So everyone's preaching the story, hey, we got through COVID, we're back up to speed. Well, they got through COVID taking on $10 billion of debt and not paying a single payment on a ship other right. than... Okay, so, so, so Blake, could you just... Let's wind it up to a question here because it, 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 I'm it, sorry. Okay, 2.2 yeah. billion in ship payments is what's due for through 23. 5.1 billion they have to refinance on their debt maturities um, at high yield. So just wanted so, to see so, how so, you guys so, see that. Yeah, so I, I don't know that anyone on the stage wants to speak specifically to Royal Caribbean. I mean, I could imagine that if someone like Porter had a position, he wouldn't want to talk about it, but. I think it's a fair question. It's a perfect example of what Mark Cahodes was talking about before, about, you know, these companies that are uh, existing only because of cheap debt. So I don't know if Mark or Porter or Vincent, any of you want to speak generically about this type of situation or if you want to speak specifically. I mean, we I can appreciate if, if you know, Mark, you may be willing to talk about it. Directly. I mean, I, I, have, I have a quick thought. This is Porter. I have a quick thought just in terms of if you look at some of these balance sheets like Royal Caribbean, like American Airlines, you know, 
they're complete disasters. You know, the, 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 and you talk about, you know, AMC and GameStop. I'll give AMC or uh, GameStop a little bit of credit. You know, they, they raised equity with, with um, some of these other guys that, that, that didn't raise equity and still have all this debt outstanding. They're dead. These companies are completely dead and they better hope that, you know, that, that the credit markets open up again and they, they will. But I just don't see how that a Royal Caribbean or American Airlines grows out of this debt. You, you, you know, you're, these companies exist for the bondholders now. 100%, Porter. 100%. The problem is, unlike Mark or yourself or KFAB or Vincent, folks up on the, and most of the Cantro people in this room, unfortunately, a lot of the investor class, it, it just, they don't, they don't even think balance sheets are relevant. And it just, it, and then to extent some of these stocks are even in indices they got bought for you know reasons that have nothing, nothing to do with price discovery so i couldn't agree with you more and, and that just makes the opportunity set i think that much richer for someone like mark or yourself or myself if you pay attention to the balance sheet so totally agree. Uh, yeah 100 percent. all right let, let's move on here um i want to go to zach and then baseman is back no zach connor and then baseman zach what's up hey uh, george thanks uh question for porter or vincent uh, if you guys were to look back, I guess here we are today, comparing it to 07, 08 time frame, and in 08, say September 14th being the eye of the storm, where would you put us to here at the end of July 2022, looking back in that time frame? Um, for me, I, I think it's different, right? In, in that at that point in time, we didn't really know the powers like people talk about bubbles, bubbles. To, to me, there's one bubble, right? And the bubble is central banks, money creation, and the like. That was the same bubble that was there in 2008. The only difference was that bubble manifested itself in housing and really weak bank balance sheets. Uh, getting back to what George was saying, I think because it's now a bubble where now the bubble is sovereign debt because of the, because of central banks, this is going to take a long time. So I, so anyone who's expecting the V, I don't see it, at least not now, at least not yet, and not at 4,000. So I just think this is like George said, I don't think this is going to be quickly over and done. I think we're going to have to deal with years of managing through what we did for the past 13 years, my opinion. Thanks for, thanks for that, Zach. Appreciate it. Uh, KFAB, you step back and you got a quickie, KFAB? Yeah, well, I just wanted to address what uh, Zach's question was. Um, yeah, I, I think I agree with Vincent relative to uh, the sovereign backdrop. But, you know, outside of playing currency markets, that can be a bit abstract for a lot of people. I think a byproduct of that, and you've talked about, George, is the, uh, you know, the 40 years of financialization. And I think a direct byproduct of that has been really the bubble in Western consumerism. And I think an easy way to kind of see that, just look at monthly charts of Visa and MasterCard. Amex, look at those relative to what's going on with consumer sentiment in the West and the fact that this is all happening with, uh, you know, we're just at the very front end of a potential synchronized global recession. And, and as I've said on some of your prior spaces, George, this is like a mutant um, bizarro world version of 1980 to 82. Uh, the last time we had a, a synchronized global recession, that one kind of culminated a, a decade plus of inflation and this one's kind of kicking it off 
and 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 I think that that's what we're probably looking at is the beginning of the end of the Western consumer bubble off cheap money and kind of perpetual pull forward of demand via you know central bank uh, stimulus and and you know again look at those that look at Mastercard look at Visa they look like they're beginning to be parabolas that have broken and rolling over and and think about that within the context of uh, you know, con- where consumer sentiments at. I couldn't agree with you more, KFAB. Um, we're in a brave new world, and I think the next couple of decades are not going to look anything like the last couple of decades. Um, I'll actually add one more point. It's the not only the end of cheap money, it's an end of cheap energy, right? Which I don't think the world appreciates enough is that, that the end of cheap energy is here. And look at Europe. It's a complete and total wasteland right now. I, I just don't even know how they get out of it. And, you know, we're doing and we, we this is we touched upon uh, what Vinny and I wrote in our, our semi-annual review. We're doing nothing to fix it. We're, we're not there's no CapEx going into energy. George talked about this. There's no CapEx anywhere. And, you know, the, the reluctance to the reluctance to do nuclear is just it baffles my mind. That's the only way out. And they're, they're doing nothing. And we're doing we've got this bill, this uh, inflation bill. We're doing more than renewables. We're doing the wrong thing. At least in the short term, hundred percent, Porter. Hundred percent, couldn't agree more. Let's keep it going here. Let's keep the pace up. I uh, want to go to um, what we got here. We go Connor, and then all Connor. Hi, George. Uh, can you hear me? Okay. We got you. Great. Yeah. No. Thanks for hosting another excellent spaces discussion. So my question really is for Porter and Vincent. Basically, I suppose given their own involvement in what was one of the great credit trades of the of the previous cycle and I'm just wondering what they think about the current thinking about a lot recently and just in simple terms I mean you know across you know the the, the triple b universe a chunk of which is likely to be downgraded uh junk 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 bonds loans CLOs and then European levered loans and high yield uh, bonds as well you've got about five trillion dollars worth of debt across that that whole complex and that's not even including the direct lending space which and the bdc's which is another several hundred billion but if you think about the magnitude of that credit risky credit that's outstanding and you've got this confluence of factors now with margin contraction cost inflation and to porter's point there a few moments ago about the end of cheap energy i think you know input costs for a lot of industrial companies are going to be elevated for a long period of time and then on top of that obviously you've got the higher interest rates and you've got a big chunk of this debt that's covenant life. So there are no tripwires for when it actually does all uh, go wrong. I'm just curious as to what they think. Uh, do they see a, a big potential credit risk or, or, or trade in across that whole yield space? Or how do they think about that? Thanks. I mean, the lending that's going on now. I mean, the, the, I'll, 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 put, I'll say the good news first. The, the U.S. banking system is not doing the dumb loans. Correct not doing it they, 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 they just they can't right they're you know they're, they're t- terrible investments anyway they're wards of the state but that's a different issue right but the the the, the amount of uh covenant light loans now is like 90 percent we, we i was going crazy in 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 uh 07 when it was like 30 right and so i i think you're an inning one of of this and there hasn't been a bankruptcy yet and just to add on what Porter was saying, keep it simple, the way we're expressing, we agree with you, and the way we're expressing that point of view is by shorting various private equity 
stocks, which have been incredible publicly traded stocks. However, we think they're fat, and and that's where we believe the risk lies. Um, yeah, and that's what we're shorting. Yeah, I, I just uh, I saw uh, somebody last weekend who's been in the midst of the CLO manufacturing uh, garbage business for the last ten years uh, at a Japanese bank, and they're doing record business now. Like through the in the first half, they've been you know the demand for this crap has been actually going up. Yeah, KFAB, what could possibly go wrong, right? <laughs> yeah, and I think uh, a lot of that, that, that right, seems right. to be the thinking around that seems to be this this diversification factor, which again is the same mistake as 08, you know, in times of stress, correlation is one. But that, again, it's amazing. That just seems yeah. to be forgotten. No, 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 no. Yeah, Connor, no, you, you're on it. Great question. Thanks for that. Well, a plug for Connor. He's got a great, uh, he's got a great uh, sort of what is blog that uh, you do about some stock. So I, I've read it a couple of times. Very, well done. Oh, thanks very much, Porter. Appreciate that. You're very kind. That's awesome. Let's keep it going here. Thanks, George. Uh, I want to, you know, I want to, no, thanks for the contribution. Always welcome here. Um, let's keep it going because I don't want this room to go on too much longer. Let's do uh, Enfant and then Neely and then Baseman is going to follow up. Enfant? Thank you, George. I actually have a question uh, for Porter. You just mentioned it's one of the greatest time maybe for stock pickers. But if you look at... Um, broader market and look at most investors cash levels all-time high and then um, growth and net exposure all-time low uh, where do you see the disconnect between your perspective and border market and can you maybe illustrate some examples of um, where do you see uh, the most attractive opportunity sets in the market uh, to deploy capital uh, as of now on both law and short side thank you or do you want to take that? You want me to take that? You can take a swing at it. I'll, I'll follow up if you want. Yeah, I'll take a I'll take a swing a bunt at it, and uh, you'll probably give a more thoughtful answer. So I think when you look at um, performance data, whether it's for long only money, it's unbelievable, or for hedge funds, even more unbelievable. I mean, here it is. You know, is 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 uh, was said earlier in the room uh, by um, Danny that. We're looking at perhaps the, 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 the greatest opportunity for stock picking that we're going to see in our lifetimes. And that's um, epitomized by some of the numbers that you know, Mark was talking about, how Porter's been doing and Henry's been doing. And these are guys that are doing the work and they're looking at absolute value. It's mind boggling to me that the average long and short hedge fund, as of like a week ago, was down like something 13% for the year. This is like, you wow this wet dream come true. You couldn't ask for a better setup. And it's part, part of why I'm getting back in the game, all right? But yet, these knuckleheads as a group, hedge funds are down 13%. Because they're basically long-only guys in drag. And they don't know how to short. And, when the, and, 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 and they should take lessons from Cahotas. You wait for the Jaguar to fall out of the tree. They're doing the lazy shorts, the stupid stuff. And they don't think they're brain dead on the long side. It's all the Tiger Global, you know, and all the Tiger Cubs, all the bullshit, the Fang stocks with a little bit of Kathy Woods thrown in. There are no real investors out there anymore. And the long only guys, they're closet indexers. You've had technology have the run of the roost for so many years, properly defined, the great John Roke. He's made the alternative calculation. Technology is not 28% of the index. It's 45% of the index. 
because you got stocks like Amazon, which are in consumer discretionary, and Netflix, which I think is in communications. And so what's happened is they've all been run over. They're all closet indexers. No one's doing any real work. Not no one. Very few are. Porter is. Coates is. Vincent is. Danny is. I am. So, and you know, it's really sad. The way, the, again, Charlie Munger, please call your office. You show me the incentives, I'll show you the outcome. If there was a young would-be Peter Lynch coming into the business right now, it's just so discouraging. I mean, the business is not set up to, to grow, to, 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 to encourage um, the independent thinking. Porter and Cajotes and Vincent, these are, these are in the minority. And so I think, I think the, the, the money management industry, they got a lot of explaining to do. It's no wonder why money's piling out of active funds into ETFs. Again, this should be a goal. This should be an unbelievable year for both absolute returns and relative returns. But these guys are just going through the motions. So the fact that they're all bearish, well, the long only crowd that can't go short. And basically, we've been in the everything bear market. So, you know, it's just been a question if you're going to be long something, what goes down, with the exception of energy, everything's gone down. But then you got, you know, the institutional pressures of, oh, ESG, and you can't own energy, and this, that, and everything else. So they blacklisted the one sector you can make money in. And then everything else, just a question of how fast does it go down. So it's no wonder that the long-only crowd has a lot of cash, because it's like anything they own goes down. And on, the, and on the hedge fund side, it's like guys just don't know how to short. So I don't know. I, I, think, it, I think it's an extraordinary opportunity for guys like Porter and Vincent and Mark. Porter, over to you. Porter, unmute yourself, please. All right, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, hold on one second. Um, so everyone tells me how bearish everyone is and no one's invested. I just don't, like, I, I don't know. I talked to everybody, and I, I, I'm on the board of a couple, you know, in, investment committees. Like, they haven't sold anything. They haven't sold a single thing. And you look at all these, you know, Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley advisors, they haven't sold a thing. They're, they're asking, you know, the, my, my, a couple of my friends are bearish financial advisors and they have their 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 uh, clients in 50% cash. And he gets questions every day of like, we're going to miss out. We're going to miss out. We're going to miss out. We got to keep buying. So I, I don't know. I, I sort of ignore all those things. Uh, when stocks are oversold, you can tell when stocks are oversold, right? Whether it's R deep RSIs or, you know, stocks get cheap. I sort of ignore the 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 surveys and all that kind of stuff. You know, everyone has their own uh, way of doing it. I sort of ignore the noise and, and, and look at, you know, if the stock I'm short goes down 50%, you know, A, the stock got cut in half and my position's smaller, maybe I'll trim some. Uh, and if it gets to my price target, I'll trim some. Board. But other than that. 100% for 100%. All right, let's go to Neely and then Baseman. Neely, welcome. What's up? Thanks, George. Thanks for the opportunity to ask Porter and Vincent this question. Um, I'm a toddler when it comes to understanding about financials plumbing, but I've been lately been contemplating around the implementation of CECL and how that might affect loan growth, counterparty risk, reported losses, particularly in the community bank sector, sector where they really don't have the resources to understand how to estimate the loan loss. Do you think about this? Is there something to this, or do you think it's much ado about nothing? Thank you. Uh, this is Vinny. Um, 
I spent a lot of time on Cecil. I think that's why Porter's laughing. Um, think of it the way I think about it. Uh, don't say think of it. The way I think about it, it's an accounting entry. And what they're simply doing is providing life of loan reserves against respective loans, right? Which that all that's going to do is create volatility and expected volatility in forward earnings. So when things are bad, and it's a pro-cyclical type of method of accounting. So when things are bad, they're going to have to over-provision because life of reserves, or if they're originating too many loans, you're going to see a very volatile earnings stream. What I would do if I were you is think about the community banks or any other financial services company, and now start looking at them the way we historically have looked at them, which is on a book value and add back the reserves. And my younger colleague, Ronnie, came up with this term, uh, loss-absorbing capital, which is really the equity capital that you have plus the reserves. I tend to like to buy banks when they're trading at, say, a 70% discount to book. And I tend to like to sell short banks when they're trading at, depending on the bank, obviously, some are better than others, better businesses, at, say, two times capital. And if you think about it from that perspective, and if you really take a wider lens as to how you should invest in these things, I think it'll make your life much easier if you give yourself a little bit of duration when you're thinking about it. Thank you. You're welcome. That's great. All right, let's go back to uh, Baseman. You got a key, Baseman? Baseman, please unmute yourself. Yeah, hey, th this is for... Uh... Uh, Vinny and Porter, and maybe Cantro can weigh in on this too. Uh, can you guys talk a little about maybe shine a light on um, trading against algos and how that's how that's um, maybe had to change your your style, if you will? I mean, you know, for example, yesterday when Powell spoke um, and he used the words like neutral, um, I mean, the market ripped, and a lot of and a lot of the stuff you just you know, you, it's just it's 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 head scratching, and so I, I'm just curious how that. Uh, Algos yeah. have maybe uh, affected uh, yeah. right. So hey, 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 Cantro, uh, maybe you could take that, uh, and then and then and then Porter Cantro. Hey, you know what? I, I, can you repeat it? I when he when he jumped me up, I I uh, lost the. Yeah, no. The, the, the question was how, how does the how does the, uh, the, the the role of algos how does that uh, affect your thinking and how you approach the market? Uh, how does the role of algos affect how we approach the market? Um, yeah, just I mean on a trading basis. Maybe it's more important yeah, question. Not, I don't know, but just, I, you know we're not we're not so short term, and you know while while obviously there's manipulation from algos and index passive indexing and stuff, you know we still continue to see factor performance follow the typical macro and market cycle. Um, so I think you know maybe it's not day to day, week to week. You get a lot of uh, tracking error there, but it's not something that I think has broken our framework or something we're concerned that's going to break our framework yet. Again, this is, this is just my opinion, but you know, the, 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 fa the factor models that used by Citadel and all these guys have completely bastardized the market, right? They're, 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 they're hedging out their beta, you know, every 30 seconds, and they're they're adjusting their factor portfolios in, in a dark room behind the the portfolios you know managers back. It's completely bastardized the market. And I'm sure they're trading against them. That's a whole different issue. But um, you know, the, if you be in markets and you're and you sell sell stock short for a living, 
you see how uh, these stocks react on on Fed Day and on uh, certain things in in the earnings press release. I mean, the, the 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 company's gotten smarter and they know what to say in earnings press releases. Where they when they know they're gonna puke a quarter, they announce a buyback or stuff like that. And so, listen, I, you just become attuned to the the, the catchphrases and and uh, stuff like that. But um, again, I, I try to ignore the noise, ignore the noise as much as possible, and focus on the on the fundamentals and what the what the numbers are spitting out, uh, what the balance sheets look like, what what are the earnings trajectories, and so I think that's the easiest way to you know ignore the noise and the algos and all that kind of stuff. Thanks for that, uh, Port. Appreciate it, Cantro. Uh, I was gonna like kind of bring the room to a close. Um, I know you wanted to say something earlier. Any other thoughts? I think maybe there were some earlier comments that were made that I know you wanted to speak, but you had to fall out. Um, Anything else you'd like to say, Cantrell? Uh, no, I don't have to keep everyone here. You know, you know, our stories. I'm, I'm, we're trying to figure out how long the market's going to celebrate the idea that inflation's peaking, and and how bullish invest, how long bullish investors are going to, you know, ignore the fundamental deterioration we're seeing in our economy, and you know, the, the basic tenants of the business cycle working their way out, working their way out. You know, I kind of, I think the weakness we're seeing and you hear from consumer companies, you know, how the consumer is getting crushed. And you think about it last year, the tightening in the macro economy all came from oil and gasoline prices. It wasn't interest rates. That's been really over the last, let's say, call it maybe the last 12 months, but you know, the oil and gas was much earlier. And this year it's all been interest rates uh, and, and, you know, lesser extent oil and gas, um, especially as the years evolved. And so, I think we're going to see, as a result of that, we are seeing a shift in leadership in the market. Uh, I think the biggest losers of the first six months are, no, are, are not going to be the biggest losers going forward. And, um, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I think it's, just, it's all playing out. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, Kendra, yeah Kendra, let me ask you this question because uh, you, you, you've nailed this market cold. And you, and you I love your, your construct about, you know, if we're looking maybe the opposite of the – 2020-21 where you know first you had the valuation expansion they had the earnings kick in now conversely you had the, the earnings fall the valuation compressing and then the earnings fall apart so i know everyone wants to celebrate uh rates right here right now but to my way of thinking um and to you and just pouring gasoline on your fire this doesn't say anything but the earnings outlook and so if if we're um you know, if we, if we still believe, and I certainly do, and I believe you do, the earnings are going to be really disappointing going forward for the next, you know, few quarters. And there isn't a bottom in sight until maybe the middle half of the middle of next year. Um, I mean, how long can people look past, I mean, how long can people look past the deteriorating earnings uh, situation? And, 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 and part two of that would be what's actually happened to revisions in the last couple of weeks, few weeks, are earnings estimates are finally starting to roll over. They're horrible. They're sitting at 20% uh, month to date uh, in the S&P have been positive, which is the lowest we've seen in, you know, since COVID collapsed. And the overall earnings number, which got its highest 251 for next year, is now down to 247. We think that's just going to keep bleeding lower and lower and lower. And again, we're only in the second inning of this. And, you know, what, what really... <laughs> steal uh, a uh, family guy reference really grinds my gears is you know how investors think oh everything's priced in we're all forward looking but what the hell happened a year and a half ago in 2021 when we had a 30 percent rise in earnings because the earnings estimates were way too low and no one could see that yet every
Cantor, I think we lost you. You still there? Go on, keep going. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, it's just mind-boggling the asymmetry of, of, of sentiment uh, in, for investors that we can see the future when things are going down, but clearly there's been no period in time where the markets can see the future when, the, when everything's going up. That's why it just keeps grinding up as long as leading economic right. things are going up, and now they're all going down. Well, well, Cantor, what if we get a scenario, not what if we get, how likely do you think it is? Let's put it that way. How likely do you think it is? This, this is the belief I'm coming around to. How likely is the scenario that we get where, okay, we get a slowdown, recession, whatever. But the key thing, and I know this is this lives out in the future, so it's hard to prove this to anybody. But as was espoused earlier here this morning before you came in the room, this idea from the Fed guy and others that, you know, because there isn't uh, as much uh, excess labor around, companies are going to be hesitant and slow to shed labor. And if you get an environment where, you know, we still, we've had accelerating wage gains, and Jim Bianco's pointed out that the disparity between uh, salary increases for those leaving their job versus those staying at their job, I think I think the overall wage gain is like 4.7% or something like that, but those leaving their jobs are getting 64 and that's like an all-time record high, that disparity. So that's showing that there's no pressure coming on. You can say whatever you want about the bond market, but you know, looking at look at unit labor costs, looking at labor, which is always you know one of the one of the key, if not the largest component of, of uh, profit margins or input costs, that there's no good news there. And so that if we get a slowdown, and let's assume pricing power dissipates even a little bit, if you want to believe the inflation is peaking story, but yet wage costs are you know not coming off. That you could get not just a profit squeeze, but something that could last for quite a long time. And so, you know, rather than arguing about the recession, it's not recession, inflation's, you know, is peak this month, next month, whatever. It's more the duration of this thing. And and, and, and then the last was a two-pole code. One, that, and then two, for everyone hanging their hand on future rate expectations, as Jim Bianco was pointing out this morning, that's just the market. If you look at the bond market, the bond market has done a horrible job, a horrible job of forecasting interest rates looking out to the future. So I get it. That's 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 the narrative du jour. But we should take that to the bank. If you look at the track record of what the bond market predicted, you'd be like, no way. So to me, it just doesn't make any sense. I don't know what part of that you want to respond to. There are two questions there. Well, yeah, I think, I think what's being underappreciated is, again, the duration of this. And everyone's going to, you know, you're going to see all this crap out of wall street like this is what the market does when you go into recession and it bounces its bottoms this this many months before or you know junk like that and you know again context is so important there's only seven or eight recessions in the back the last 50 60 years so it's not not a lot of not a lot of evidence and data points but what's i think it's screwing people up on the timing of this and the dis- disconnect between the market and the economy and the, and the and the sequence in the economy and the cycle is that the first four months of this year, the bear market was not an earnings bear market or an economic bear market. It was a rates bear market, which we haven't had in 45, 50 years. But that's when everyone started the clock on looking for weakness in the economy and keep saying, well, why isn't it showing up? Why isn't it showing up? Because we're now only now beginning the earnings and employment bear market, which is just starting. So on your point about employment, Every leading indicator that has any reliability at forecasting claims is pointing straight up, things that lead by 12, 18 months. And so what we, we are looking at today is 20 other series that look exactly like claims and behave exactly like claims to see, well, what are those doing? So things like, you know, the most egregious one is consumer confidence, 
which is just completely blown up over the last year. doesn't mean claims are going to shoot up tomorrow, but that's a red flag. we got ISM services employment, which never gives a false signal. That's at 47 today. That's the, that's the, one, the third worst number in the history of that data going back to 98. Uh, you got average work week at a new cycle low. So there's enough evidence that this is all happening if you look deep enough, and that's what's going to help us time. a little bit too early. I think another quarter and everyone's going to be watching claims like they're watching inflation. Can I say something, George? George, Go for it, Mark. Mark, go for it. I don't know this Cantrell fellow, but he sounds pretty sharp. Mark, Mark, I got to stop you for one second. He is the best strategist on the street, period. You got to get to know him. Keep going. I, 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 I get that, but I don't want you to be frustrated because I think there's two things that that everyone's missing. One is the effect of Cartoon Network on people's minds, which completely ruined people's minds. And that this cycle is very different because the leverage and the debt is so extreme. So Cartoon wants you to think that the Fed's pivoting and the worst is in and it's time to buy. Everyone is trying to jump the gun supporters comment because everyone focuses on things by the minute people who do their work know it's too early but you have a whole group of investors including institutions who don't want to miss anything and and everyone thinks that that now that the fed is so-called done that you have to own things well no one knows if the fed's done and two you don't have to own things unless you specifically like it and I don't want to be too crude here, but as my late friend Bruton Smith would say, once the dog catches the bus, if it can't eat it or fuck it, what does it do? And I think that's going to be the problem here because inflation is not going back to 2%. Earnings are going to suck and the Fed's in a box. So if you think you can make money in stocks, you better have something that's very, very idiosyncratic very specialized and that you've done your work on it other than that you can just absolutely get destroyed because all of the atmospherics try to push you now the right way so cantro don't be frustrated by it it's just a function of what's out there that everyone wants to jump the gun and just stay disciplined with the work you do because you know, from what I hear from you, I think you're a sharp guy, and you'll and you'll get it right. But just don't let all this noise get to you. That's that's kind of my point. Wow, I, I do, and I appreciate that. And that's you know, that's why we spend every day, every week, trying to come up with more material to check ourselves, debate our own views, and to try to best communicate our views of where we think things are headed. And, you know, the more evidence, the better. We're, you know, we're big on breadth of information. That's why, you know, that's where the confidence comes from today is just having a framework and seeing the breadth of the story. And listen, if, if, if I'm wrong, I've got to take a year off because this is as much as I've seen the stars line up. But again, it takes time. Well, George, George, I've said this to you before, and, and, and Mike, I think you might have been on the call before. If, if you go back to this, literally this time in 2008, we had just gotten a 1.9% GD print. 
The market was in the midst of a 10% rally from the July trough to the August peak in the midst of Fannie and Freddie having are basically going bankrupt in the process of going bankrupt. Right. So these kind of moves are absolutely to be expected within the context of a normal cycle turning over. Yeah. KFAB, as always, you, you nail it. Guys, just think about this room for a second. Just look at this room. To start off with Danny Moses, but look what we got going up here. We got Cajotes, Cantro, Porter, Connor, Vincent, KFAB, Neely. Moses has already left. I've left out some other people. It's just, I don't know how much money I would have paid back in the day to listen to a panel discussion at a fancy conference. This is just, this is unbelievable. I mean, I keep saying we got the best spaces, the best rooms. We certainly do. And the main reason is we got we got the best speakers and the smartest audience. I want to thank each and every one. It's just phenomenal. So with that, again, I, I, like my my colleagues tell me I talk too much. These rooms go on for too long, but can't keep a good thing down. We're at two and a half hours. Uh, we're gonna call it here. Well, don't worry, there'll be more coming in the coming days and weeks. It's been a fabulous room. I want to thank again, Codes. It's always phenomenal when you're here. Porter, I'm glad you're often here, but you don't talk that much. We got to get you up here. In fact, we're going to do a room, I think, just with you. We'll have Cody ask the questions. But um, this has been awesome. Uh, and we're going to do it again. So I want to thank everyone. This has been phenomenal. And uh, see you before too long. Everyone take care. Bye bye. <laughs>